1: Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. This is going to be a really, really fun one. We love doing these deep dives, and we're going to talk a little Machiavelli today. No, I'm not talking about my favorite Tupac album. Uh, The guy, the myth, the legend, believe it or not, influence on a whole lot of people, including founding fathers, including people today. You're going to be shocked. We're going to go to our friend Amanda Griffiths has returned to the program. Last time we had her on, she mentioned this, and I was like, ooh, I want to do that one. Now we get to do it. I'm thrilled you're here. Thank you so much for joining us for this one
2: this is honestly a dream come true andrew this is i think i've peaked and it's just downhill from here so we're going to enjoy it
1: now if we could get movie rights to it that would be because then you get paid for it but this is going to be fun i think um of course you've known amanda she's been on the program before uh university of chicago you know if you got to go to school in the midwest not a bad spot uh cato institute long list of accolades and accomplishments but this is kind of your baby isn't it you love in fact last time you were on the show you were wearing a machiavelli shirt I, um
2: yeah i got another one too i have but i think i have three machiavelli shirts here's a, this is a machiavelli quote shirt from chapter 18 of the prince the fox lion quote uh well, for the podcast
1: so. folks though give them the quote real quick just in case they're not watching
2: so yeah in in english um <clears throat> the lion cannot protect himself from uh, from traps and the fox cannot defend himself from wolves one must therefore be a uh, a fox to recognize traps, uh, avoid traps and a lion to frighten wolves. And that's chapter 18 of the Prince. So now got a
1: here's, here's one of the key things. And this is something you've done a lot of research on before we even go into the myths and the legends and all that. And we're going to get into all that. There's an old joke in poetry and I'm not a great poet, but I had to, you know, you got to take humanities when you go to school, even community college kids like me, there's the old joke of like, where does the poet stop? And the translator start, right? You've done quite a bit of research on this. The translations matter a lot, especially something that's controversial, especially something where he kind of had an interesting writing and speaking style where he was kind of talking around things and talked in allegories and talked in metaphors. Talk about the translation element of this because people don't know, you know, we're dealing with Italian, we're dealing with Latin, we're dealing with the 15th century here. That's a really important piece of this puzzle to have before you even delve into anything, isn't it?
2: It is, and in fact, in, in Italian they have a they have a saying that goes "traduttore um, traitore, which is "translator traitor." Um, that the idea being that you can never quite grasp someone through translation. This was something that you understand intuitively, I think, early on when you're reading someone, and it's the reason that I decided I had to learn Italian. As uh, I started reading Machiavelli very young and realize I've got to read this guy and the language in which he wrote to really get him, because you get that sense as you're reading him, you're like, this is, I'm not getting something, there's something here. So a lot of my work, particularly my early work, uh, looks at specific words and phrases that Machiavelli uses that have been translated in in myriad ways and looks at sort of, okay, how was this word being used back then? How is Machiavelli using it in this given context? And then, how have people interpreted this? Perhaps either in, in a more cursory way, or in a way that's not quite holistic uh, with with respect to what he really means, what he's really getting at. And uh, a couple of my earlier papers take a look and do some deep dives on that um, with respect to his views on virtu, with his res- uh, virtue, with respect to his views on fortune, fortuna. So that's that's a lot of some of my early work that's then spawned more of my uh, more of my recent work as well.
1: Now, we talk about one of our founding principles in our program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Mm -hmm. Boy, is there a lot of cross history right about the time Machiavelli shows up. He's born in the Florence, which is, of course, one of the centers of Europe at the time. We know the Renaissance. This is right after uh, the Mendici family, which, boy, you could do a whole career's worth just on them. Yes. Uh, Savrianola, if you don't know that story, that just went down. There's a lot of stuff going on around the, you know, just this is local news. This isn't even national news for our parlance. This is stuff happening right in and around him. This is a real crossroads of history that he shows up in, isn't it?
2: Yeah. So I guess giving a little bit of historical context, if we want to give a setting, Machiavelli is born on May 3rd, 1469. And uh, at the time, there's a whole lot of political unrest and unease. The Medici are in and out and in and out of power. And in, uh, in the 1490s, you get uh, the, really the peak of the Spanish Inquisition. You have, as you mentioned, uh, Savonarola. Um, but we'll go back a little bit earlier. When Machiavelli is nine years old, there's something called the Pazzi Conspiracy. Interestingly, pazzo in Italian means crazy, but it's this attempt to assassinate the the Medici family. Uh, One assassination attempt is successful, the other fails, and the fallout of the Pazzi Conspiracy, Machiavelli is witnessing all of this as a nine-year-old, and he's witnessing it live. Uh, he's nine years old and there are people being disemboweled in the town square, uh, hung from windows. If anyone has seen Hannibal, uh, the early scene where Hannibal makes a reference to uh, to someone getting hung out of windows, I won't get too graphic, that happened. There is an extremely good chance Monkey only saw that. He at least heard of it and again he's nine years old. So that's his grounding in politics. Then in the 1490s, The Medici are run out. There is this revival of, you know, religious, uh, apocalyptic radicalism, this idea of the imminence of redemption being at hand. Is it an eschaton? Is it a renewal? There are fighting factions with respect to that. Um, And then Savonarola is burnt at the stake. Uh, Savonarola is this, this, this kind of dissident religious radical. He's not a papist, but he is extremely, uh, extremely rabid, and so are his followers. Machiavelli is part of a a very briefly established new government that's more republican. He becomes the right-hand man of this guy named Piero Sodrini, who is uh, sort of it's called gonfaloniere but kind of the leader of Florence. Then the Medici return. Soderini is run out. Uh, Machiavelli is put on this list of potential conspirators against the Medici. Uh, we're we're skipping a lot, and we can we can go back and dive into some things. Machiavelli eventually is put on a list of potential conspirators against the Medici. And an arrest, or sorry, a warrant is, is sent out for his arrest. He goes and hides. Then another announcement is made that anyone who knows of his whereabouts and does not share them will share his fate, whatever that may be. At that point, Machiavelli turns himself in. And because he, and he's not been conspiring against the Medici, he just doesn't want his friends and his family to have whatever is gonna happen to him, which is probably gonna be death. He doesn't want that to happen to them. And he is in the um, uh, Barquello, which is a prison for, uh, for, for a, almost a month, I believe. He is tortured. Uh, he is interrogated finally he is released uh, mercifully and goes back to uh, to this kind of little family family uh, family hut where I've been on the outskirts of of Florence. It's called Albergaccio, which literally means ugly inn. Um, And that's where he does a lot of his writing. That's where he does a lot of his his speaking and and his his conversations with, with people where he gets his fodder for his most famous works, The Prince and the Discourses. And then he does eventually come back into politics, never enjoys quite the same position that he had with Soderini, but he does attempt to train a civilian militia, which was kind of his pet project. Um, there is another, sadly, there, there's another Republican revival that ousts the Medici family again. Machiavelli, we would think, would be very, very sympathetic to that. But because Machiavelli technically worked for the Medici, he's not trusted. And uh, he dies pretty soon after that on uh, June 21st, 1527. So, again, a lot of history, but, there, but there's some of your context.
1: Yeah, and this is all under uh, the Borgia rule, which is an important context. So he's not even the wickedest guy in town by far. He's well, way down the list.
2: The Borgias have been pretty lines, um, perhaps a yeah. little bit unfairly. But yeah, the, he was. He worked for the, he worked for Cesare Borgia briefly during that little stint when uh, Alexander VI was Pope. And then uh, Cesare Borgia was trying to unify the, uh, the Romagna area.
1: Yeah, no, the Borgias are so good. They've had two disparate and very different uh, TV series already made about them. You can go check them out. Uh, the Overseas Carnival one is far superior, by the way, just my personal accurate right. but humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's so much stuff going on here. Here's where we should start, though, because people know about his writing and The Prince, and The Prince is what really made him famous but nobody read that book the first 20 years it was out Th- this thing was definitely a slow burn this is where the myth and the legend really starts catching up with the guy because he had success in his you know in his own city and city state and the politics of the day but what we think of as machiavelli doesn't really start until that book goes international and world leaders at the time you know start reading it the french get a hold of it Henry VIII was known to be a, a fan of it. Thomas Crawwell, we've got papers where he talks about it. That's where this really starts turning into what we think of as Machiavelli, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, so you brought up a really great point. The English-speaking world, our first introduction to Machiavelli was not through a translation of Machiavelli. Uh, it was through a guy named Innocent Gentiller, who is uh, who was a French Protestant and he wrote a book called Contre Machiavelli, which is anti-Machiavelli. So imagine, like, there's this writer or reporter or journalist, whatever, who's written this thing in the Atlantic, but you haven't read it. And I come up to you and I say, hey, have you read this article? And you haven't. And I say, well, let me tell you all about it and why it's wrong and what it says and why it's bad. And that's basically what Gentier did. He made Machiavelli this scapegoat for Catholic sacrilege during the, Protestant, the English Protestant Reformation, French Protestant Reformation, where obviously the Catholics and the Protestants not really great friends. Machiavelli again becomes this scapegoat. Gentier refers to him uh, as a uh, follower of Epicurus, a, a doctor of atheists and a master of ignorance, which I really want on a business card. Uh, that sounds kind of cool. But at any rate, there, that's how the English speaking world world is introduced to him before they even read Machiavelli, they read this guy maligning Machiavelli, constructing all of these, you know, kind of paper Machiavellian maxims and knocking them down. So then we come to Machiavelli, having this idea, even if we're inclined to be sympathetic to the guy, even if we're inclined to read him in a more nuanced light. There's always already a filter where we've gotten this idea that an argument that has been made by Machiavelli that perhaps hasn't really been made, but someone has told us, here's what he means when he says X. Here's what Machiavelli thinks. So you're always kind of having to construct an apologia for something that might not have even ever been said or thought or intended. And that's how we kind of get this that that's how this myth of Machiavelli is first first incepted
1: yeah so for those of you that need a flow chart for all this which I'm one of them we're not even out of the 15th century yet here and already to get to the core of Machiavelli we've got to run through this French Huguenot who's a Protestant because he wrote this discourse against Machiavelli or anti-Machiavelli that was published in Geneva in 1576 Mm -hmm to understand something that he wrote in the 1520s that wasn't even released until years later about a guy that's already needing to be translated. That's a lot of, that's a lot of filters to try to get to something. And, you know, if you know anything about source documentation and, you know, textual criticism and stuff, man, we're not even 50 years from the guy and you've already got a mess on your hands.
2: Yeah, no, it's like six degrees, but so many more. And, you know, you, you get this, you get this anytime that you, that someone that you're in a class, right? And someone teaches you about someone. You're getting their opinion, their distillation, their filter of them. Um, when I started reading Machiavelli, I was, I didn't, I wasn't doing it for a class. The first time that I read Machiavelli, and so no, one, no one ever taught me how to read Machiavelli, which is kind of why I have some heterodox opinions on. Uh, obviously, I have since taken courses on Machiavelli taught by Machiavelli scholars but when I first came to him, it was completely raw. It was without any of that, let me tell you what he means. And that really, I think there's kind of a, a, a beauty in that level of ignorance sometimes when you encounter a thinker and you can only do it once. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how you get a lot of the Machiavellian uh, maxims and, and potential halfway translations that might miss the mark or might miss some of the nuance. Um, is a lot of it starts with with people like Jean-Thier.
1: And it's amazing because, and here's where it gets really funny, you just mentioned the thinkers. Boy, you start looking at the list of philosophers, and these are just the ones that mention him by name and quote him and actually do work about him. I mean, this is Bowdoin, Francis Bacon, Algeron Sidney, Harrington, Milton, Spinoza, Rousseau, Hume, Gibbons, Adam Smith, like this is a who's who list for the 16th, 17th century philosophers, and they're all dealing with this guy, and they're dealing with him secondhand through a translation. Is it any wonder that this is kind of become, you know, it's almost urban legend at this point, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Well, and uh, you, it goes down, even carries through today. Uh, I have a friend who actually does research on how Machiavelli has influenced various theories of grand strategy and his knowledge on that far outstrips mine. But um, you, every single person who reads Machiavelli kind of has a different Machiavelli, uh, which should be telling in and of itself. You know, even when you're looking at how Machiavelli has influenced grand strategy, well, every one of these grand strategies is different. Everyone has a different idea of what Machiavelli's philosophy of history is. Everyone has a different idea about what Machiavelli thinks about chance or fate or contingency, what Machiavelli thinks about religion. So that in and of itself, for me, is a huge, I mean, it just makes me really insatiably curious. So who is this guy? Let's read him in the language in which he wrote. Let's get into who he was, where he was, whom he knew, what were these discourses that surrounded him at the time, and how do or don't they emerge in his work, that kind of thing. That's that's what really turns me on about this research.
1: Yeah, we're going to take a quick break. Amanda Griffiths is joining us. We're talking Machiavelli. That's the background. That's the mythology. That's the mess that you got to wade into to get to it. So we're going to get to it right after the break. The actual two main works, Discourses on Livy, The Prince, which is the famous one. What does it actually say? Does anybody actually know what it says, even though it's one of the most widely read things ever? Amanda Griffiths joining us on her Tale. We'll be right back with her right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. All right, we're talking conspiracy theories, one of the original conspiracy theories, Machiavelli, because who knows what he wrote? And he wrote two major works, and we still can't determine what he wrote. Uh, Amanda Griffins, break this down for us. Let's start with The Prince, because that's the big one. We went through why the translation's an issue. We went through why culturally there's some issues. Um, The English world especially got really enamored with him. What is the prince actually about? What was he addressing as an author? And what does it actually say when you read it in context, understanding the time period he wrote it in and in the original language?
2: Sure. That's a fantastic question. And there are so many answers to it. The prince is doing a lot of things. In one sense, the prince is, as many people know, Machiavelli's attempt to get back into politics. He's writing this hoping to impress uh, potential future employers yes, that's all true, Uh, the Medici family, who are now back in power. He's also writing this for, as he says in his introduction, for whoever understands it. He's writing this, and this is not unique to Machiavelli, he's writing this with an eye toward future generations, toward future leaders, and he's writing this, this especially comes out in the final chapter of The Prince, he's writing this to someone, to anyone, who would be a redeemer, a unifier of the Italian cities, uh, who would redeem Italy from the barbarians that are invading. Uh, And we don't know, those can be from within and from without. So he's writing this in a sense, in a very immediate context. Yes, he wants to get back into power and say, hey, I've got some really great strategies for you guys. I can help you, I can be a great strategist. He's also writing this to say, this is how you lead, and this is how you as an individual can lead. This is how you as a people can lead. This is how you become a leader. Um, and that is the the that's the both immediate and longer-term deeper sense of of what's going on in in the prince.
1: Yeah. So one of the big problems here, and apologies to my father here, who's a you know dedicated Greekophile. Part of the problem here is people think this is, you know, Machiavelli got that reputation of, well, it's underhanded tactics and dirty play and this sort of thing. Where a lot of that comes from, though, is because the way he wrote this, it's written, on, it's written an allegory, but it's like a how-to manual. This is how you exercise power. So it's very blunt about you have to have we already talked about he he was enamored with raising his own civilian militia because he had a hatred for mercenaries, probably from those things he saw as a childhood hated mercenaries. So he believed in, you know, citizen soldiers or a standing army, and he dedicated himself to that. So those kind of influences are there. But that breaks from the Greek tradition, which was which ideal society are you going to pick and then try to get to the ideal society? He was very blunt about not believing in that. That was very jarring to people, especially the Roman Catholic Church, which came out of the Roman tradition, which was a remix of the Greek tradition. I know that's a lot of deep philosophical stuff to skim over, but that's kind of where the problem starts is he broke with the thought of the day. He he wasn't so much being underhanded. He was just being blunt and people took it as, oh, this is underhanded, dirty play because it was just so radical to the way they thought of things. Is that a fair a way to put it?
2: Uh, It is. It is. And I think, again, a lot of it is you get these weird kind of wacky, wonky translations. Um, One of them that I know we, we discussed back and forth was people think of him as this guy who says, well, you know, the ends justify the means. And this just this is kind of kind of an example of how it gives you an example of how translations can sometimes be a little bit deceiving. So Machiavelli never literally says the ends justify the means. Uh, What he does say in Italian, and then we'll do English, si guarda al fine. So one looks to the fine end. Now that's often translated as one judges by the final result. One looks to the outcome. The outcome matters. Fine is an interesting word in Italian. It's exactly like end in English. It has two meanings. It means outcome. Uh, it means the final product of something but it also means intention what's your end goal what's your end game italian's more helpful than english in this respect because you can tell oftentimes what end someone means with the gender so il fi or ah, la fine the feminine is the final result the conclusion the outcome of something Il fine, which is what Machiavelli is using in the contraction, si guarda al a il fine. Often that's that's the only version of fine that also means intention. Now it can mean both intention and outcome, but if you just wanna say outcome, oftentimes you're gonna go with la, you're gonna go with feminine, which Machiavelli doesn't use. If you wanna say intention, you've gotta go with il. So what Machiavelli is doing is he's using the version of finne that has that double meaning. He's using that version of finne that indica- and implicates both intentions and outcomes. So now you've got something where we're not quite sure whether he's saying one looks at the outcome or one looks at the intention. The intention is what matters. My understanding of the guy is He's saying both, that it's not the ends justify the means. You've got to ask which end. And what Machiavelli is telling us is both types of ends matter. You need the right intention and you need to unify that intention with the effectual result. So that's a little bit of a taste of how some of these things get obscure when you just read it in a cursory way.
1: Right. And again, to bring it back to a practical level, though even though it's paraphrasing a little apocryphal ends justify the means let's be fair here this is a guy that's working for a Borgia. he was tortured by the mendices like you, I, you can kind of see where he's coming from when you're dealing with the sort of stuff he's dealing with right the and, and the point i'm making and i'm being a little funny about it though is like this is something that everybody thinks and a lot of people believe he's just saying it out loud and because of the way the legend got built up because the best thing that ever happened to the prince was the Catholic church banned it. Well, of course, <laughs> as soon as they ban it and they put it on the index Librorium prohibitorium, which by the way, is the most awesome. If, if I had a dance crew back in the day, that would have been the name. That's awesome. But that's the best thing that ever happened to this thing. Cause once you ban something and once the Catholic church, which was having its own issues at the time, cause again, Borgias are running the thing. Well, when that happens
2: really too,
1: yeah. You're just putting a a spotlight on something and going, Oh, well, why don't I want to see that? And then when it's something just so I mean, that's really it's icky, it's dirty, it's naughty, it's something you're not supposed to say. In justify the mean is also common sense to a lot of people. It's plain spoken thought to a lot of people. It's not like you know, the discourses where you got to dig in there to get a little sound bite, it's just pump right there. That's the stuff that takes fire word of mouth and that's how legends get built isn't it
2: Yeah I mean and and again you know it's it's one of those things where you're asking which which end because it's it's not as simplistic as well just the right result if it gets the job done then it's fine and it's also not you know having the right intentions is all you need neither of those things I think is 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 what's is what's being said here is what what we're saying is you need to have the right intention. You need to have the right idea of what you want and that you need to actually get it. Intentions are not enough and also just being effective isn't enough to be truly virtuous. You have to have the right intentions and the right outcomes and you have to unify those. And a lot of what Machiavelli's project is is figuring out how do you do that.
1: Yeah, talking to Amanda Griffiths. Okay, so this is obviously an important work. It's been a well-worked-over work. Instead of trying to go through the whole book um, in the time we have, I'm going to throw you a couple of the of the legends about what the book is and is, and oh, you boy. tell me whether they're correct or not. Okay. Okay. Uh, so here's some of the misconceptions of it. Was it an allegory against the Catholic Church?
2: No, I mean Machiavelli certainly didn't have. You know, he 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 was not a huge fan of the Catholic church by any stretch of the imagination. He has some very choice thoughts about the Catholic church and, and what the Catholic church has has done, particularly through uh, sort of the, the, the effeminization of people through religion and through theology. Uh, he doesn't think all religion does this, but he certainly thinks that uh, the Roman Catholic church has done it uh, mainly as a means of retaining political power. It's not an allegory against the Catholic Church, though. There, again, there are many levels to the work. And Machiavelli is if he's that's not really how allegorical writing would have worked during that time, anyhow. So he certainly is saying that people need to change the way that they're ruling. And you know, the, the Catholic Church, if they want to truly help Italy. They need to change their tactics. But no, it's not all bashing the Catholic Church.
1: Was the Prince uh, directed at Lorenzo de Michi, Medici? Excuse me, and was it a how-to manual to get into his good graces more than anything else? Because it was dedicated to him by some translations. And I know that's controversial mm-hmm. in and of itself, but mm-hmm. you can pick it up however you want to from there.
2: Uh, so it was, you know, there is the dedication and it certainly was trying to get back into politics. Is Machiavelli trying to get back into political power? I think that's absolutely true. Um, but I'm not sure if I would say it's that above all else. Um, again, Machiavelli definitely wanted this and this was one of the intentions of, of the work, but it's doing a lot of other things as well. Quite frankly, if Machiavelli had just wanted to, write something that was going to get him hired, he would have written something that was a lot more flattering to the Medici family. He comes out at several points in the work and says things that are uh, that are critical of certain tactics that the Medici have used. and this is pretty open, right And like when, when he when he lauds various enemies of the Medici that's that's pretty open. So if he were just trying, to get a job and start working for the Medici family, uh, he'd probably be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more, um, you know, flattering toward them.
1: Um, another one of these that comes up when you do a little bit of research on this, who was the audience? Um, was it the ruling class or was it for the common people trying to explain the ruling class?
2: It's a really great question. Machiavelli, again, says he's writing, his intention is to write something useful for whoever understands it. And I don't think Machiavelli is thinking, let me write this for the ruling class, or let me write this for people, and, you know, and and people could read. there's literacy, I think, is is more widespread than we give people credit for at that time, at that place, in that context. Uh, women could could read and and write. Uh, many of them as well, not not all, obviously, but um, so Machiavelli is writing for whoever is gonna read this, and I, he, he really does have an eye toward future generations. This is not something that is particularly rare. There's, there's this, they're picking up his, he and his contemporaries are picking up on this long tradition of earlier writers as well. It's Seneca, for instance, writing for people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the future, self-consciously so. And Machiavelli is doing that as well. He's, he, you can even say he's writing for us. He doesn't know exactly what it's going to look like uh, you know, in 2022, but he's writing for future generations. He's writing for people uh, in that time. He's writing for everyone, and I don't think he's writing it for one class or another. He has advice clearly for both of them, and he has criticisms of, of, of all classes as well.
1: Here's one. We'll get into this a little more because we're going to bring this up to the American uh, political system at towards the end of our conversation. But I want to go ahead and tease it now, though. Is it making an argument for republicanism? And now this isn't republicanism as we understand it in America. This is from the Greek tradition out of the Discourses, that sort of thing. It is mentioned. Is it an argument for republicanism? This kind of goes back again to you know, is it or isn't it anti-Catholic? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So it's definitely more, and it, it's it's. It's so weird because we always try to to retrofit contemporary concepts onto earlier thinkers. Um, there's the Republican tradition is very nascent in Machiavelli's time, and as you mentioned, it doesn't really mean exactly what we think of it as meaning today. It is certainly a pro-Republican small R text in the sense that it is more oriented toward individualism. It really is an individualistic work. Machiavelli is an individualistic thinker. He's not an elitist, although he understands that there will, you know, that there are political elites, he kind of sees that or wants to construct that as more of a merit-based political elite system, uh, not one that is that is codified or institutionalized by class or what have you. Um, and that's something that you'll have scholars arguing back and forth about. There are a lot of people who disagree on that. Um, is it, it's definitely more pro-popular rule than something like a monarchy. Machiavelli is part of a more small, a Republican, almost proto-liberal tradition. But again, I don't like to retrofit terms. Machiavelli is clearly working with some concepts that today we would identify as being early liberal, early Republican. Uh, He is a fan of, of more popular rule. He is an individualistic thinker, absolutely.
1: All right, this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, Russo's on; uh, oh. he actually called it a satire.
2: I thought this might come up.
1: <laughs> I, I I find this one kind. Of, this is kind of one of my favorite ones. This is like when you're discussing, you know, Bible textology, and somebody's like, "Well, the whole thing's allegory." I was like, I'm that's not really helping your argument. That almost makes it worse. So is the whole thing a, just a giant satire?
2: Short answer, no. Medium answer, heck no. Um, so, <laughs> longer longer answer. Um, that's, again, that's not really how satire would have been done anyhow during that time. Uh, we, we think, you know, there's this hipsterification of early thinkers that we like to do, oh, so-and-so is just being ironic. They were just, they were just trying, they were just making fun. That the, that tradition was was not really a literary tradition, first of all, in the same way back then. Now, Machiavelli certainly plays with irony; he certainly plays with dark humor. Um, but he's the prince is not a satire. He's not when he does satirize. It's usually through his plays. He's a great playwright. He's got some fun stuff. Um, it's it's not the there is a continuity of thought, in fact between all of Machiavelli's major works and indeed with his letters, his his letters to his friends, that if if the prince is a satire, then everything that Machiavelli ever wrote was a satire, including his personal letters, because there's a continuity of thought and intention and motive between the prince and the discourses and even the art of war. And again, private letters, poems, I can't see it being a satire and certainly not in the way that we think of satire today.
1: this one, I can't wait to watch your reaction on this one. Is oh, no. There's been a few people because there's uh-huh. always those guys. Right. But because the discourses, which is a technical term is the discourses on the first 10 books of Titus Livius, which was, you know, that's the classical way that you would deal with the subject, but he went way afield of the subject and got mm-hmm. uh, ranty. I think a fair way to say it um,
2: times. Yeah.
1: But because it was more of it went, very different in voice and key it went more into the republican system we were talking about there is the argument these were written by two different guys what <laughs> would you say to that
2: yeah i mean no uh that's that's again because of the continuity of thought uh that's that's highly unlikely i mean I, it's it's not even i it's not that's it's not true um it was not written by they were not written by two different guys there is too much evidence that it was not in every single way. But when you look at the two texts, the Prince is about politics ex novo, right? It's politics from the ground up, from a zero degree state. Well, the Discourses is about maintaining and perpetuating the state. Machiavelli is very interested in the Discourses with perpetuity, renewal. Uh, We may or may not get into some of that later. Um, so these are about two different dimensions of governance, if you like, but they are the same guy with the same beliefs talking about the ex novo and then talking about the, again, the perpetuity and the, the renewal of foundation.
1: Which makes sense when you think about it, because, again, that's the classical way you did a Therese's, was you take something like, okay, I'm going to dig deep onto this subject. You know, we, Mm -hmm. you know, it'd be like doing a doctorate paper now, for lack of a better term as a comparison. So, of course, it's going to be different. But I did I did find it funny. There's folks out there like that. We're talking to Amanda Griffiths. Okay, we're going to dig into some of those influences. We're going to start getting into the modern age, you know, 15th century, still a long time ago. How did it how does this thing endure? And then we're going to get to even how the American founding fathers uh, talked about Machiavelli and a lot of world history, big time names, good and bad, had a lot of stuff. Uh, One major figure in modern history for the bad team, the bad side, if you will, actually had his own annotated copy. We'll talk about that. Amanda Griffiths continues with us talking Machiavelli in a very non-Machiavelli way because we're trying to do it in plain language that even I can understand because she's just that brilliant. More with her right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Hertel. We're having fun with this one, but we're going to get it up to why it's important to us even today. Machiavelli, the man, the myth, the legend, the original conspiracy theories and politics, if you will, in a lot of ways. Um, So we have a gap of time here where the legend grew. We already talked about how it got into the English language, basically in the reverse way of like, hey, this guy's terrible. And everybody went, well, wait a minute, maybe we should read the source material. And it kind of took off from there. After that, though, because you have a lot of history going on, what made this thing endure so much? Because, you know, there was other, it, in and of itself, it probably wasn't that unique of a writing for the time period. Although, you know, composition-wise, it's, you know, it's tight, it's readable, that sort of thing. The one-liners, if you will, in it, that sort of stuff. Why did it endure, do you think, up until the modern time?
2: Uh, I think, again, we've talked about, you know, who who was the audience, The Prince, and we keep coming back to the fact that The Prince was written for a very wide audience and it was written for an audience beyond just Machiavelli's contemporaries. When you have a work like that and when you have a work like that that's done well, it does resonate with a, a really significant and, and long stretch of people uh, across cultures, across time frames. So I think that's why. I think there's something that resonates. There's there's a truth. I'm getting. I'm putting myself in in jeopardy here. Uh, there, there there's this kind of enduring truth that some that that at least speaks to people or seems to be present in in the prince and in the discourses in Machiavelli's work. We argue about what that is, but there seems to be something that across cultures across time is true and is present in the text, and that draws us to it. Uh, I think that's so much of why we keep coming back to it, we keep coming back to certain works like it, uh, that it it seems to sustain us and it seems to have something to say to us regardless of historical context um, that we can use.
1: Because you're talking about historical context, this is a wider topic, but just take a slice of it because you could talk about this part of it all day. Mythology and myth-making and things like machiavelli for lack of a better way to explain it, this is an important part of history because this is how stuff like political philosophy, like, you know, lost history... This has always been a big part of human history. The word of mouth tradition, mm-hmm. the legends, the myth making, the, you know, the marbleization of men, as we've called it in America, where, you know, you talk about a dead figure and it's like somewhere in that statue is the truth, but everybody just knows the statue. That really is important, even when it's wrong, even when it's got the conspiracy theories and all that, it's still an important part of how we do history, isn't
0: it?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, it's, it's something that I think is, you know, I, I, that, that is what kind of brings us back to certain thinkers. And it's something that I think not, only would approve of it. I think, you know, if, if you were to, to say, well, people will read your work. And part of that though, uh, involves a bunch of rumors and myths getting passed down about you that may or may not be true, but People will continue to find your work again and again and again, and find meaning from it. As a result, uh, I think that's something that Machiavelli and certainly a Machiavellian thinker would would support in the long run. If you have something to say, and if you have something important to say, then you know, however it takes getting it out there. Um, you're, you know, maybe we're going back a little bit to to the ends justifying the means. Which end? Well, both. Um, so yeah, I think that certainly is part of it. That is, that is certainly a a tactic of, of, of fate and of history.
1: Or as uh, my father would say, if you get the ends justifying the means and they're pulling on both ends, you know, the truth ends up being the rope. Um,
2: (laughs) I like that a lot. I dig that.
1: He's full of that kind of stuff. You know, taught high school for 35 years. He's got a lot of one-liners. Um, let's get to the nitty gritty there of how we as Americans in the year of our Lord 2022 are still talking about Machiavelli and you've even got merchandise with Machiavelli on it. We already talked about how this got into the English speaking realm and in the English speaking academic tradition through France to England. Well, when you look at our founding fathers, what was their influences? France and England. Mm -hmm. So naturally they knew about this you look into history. It's really interesting. Um, Franklin, Madison, Jefferson, they all have writings mentioning Machiavelli. We have kind of a strong stream here. They're one of the balls of thread on this thing. You pull the yarn enough American founding fathers. They like them. Some Machiavelli, both the theories of it and the mythology of it. But some of them actually read his work and treated it seriously too, didn't they?
2: They did. And this is something about which I'm sure, I'm sure you've, you've done quite a bit of reading. um, even people like Addison and Hume, who are probably more frequently invoked in some of the Founding Fathers writings, they're reading Machiavelli, uh, they're drawing from him. Uh, George Washington, in fact, was, was a very strategic and kind of cagey thinker and modeled some of his strategies after, um, <clears throat> after some of the mythology around, uh, was it, Cincinnati? So, uh, and, and obviously, Livy talks about him, Machiavelli, Uh, admires a lot of the strategies that Cincinnati uses to become this mythologized figure. So yeah, um, there's quite a bit of of Machiavelli that leaks into our own institutions, and I do say institutions, right? Uh, In the constitution that we have today, the mixed government that we have, it's not only Machiavelli who gives us this, obviously a uh, fellow named Polybius comes up with these mixed mixed regimes, but in the uh, first book of the Discourses in the early chapters, Machiavelli lays out a lot, you know, what looks sort of like an early bicameral type of system, and it's a little bit of a riffing on what the Romans had. Machiavelli gives us ideas for institutions, not just in the Discourses, by the way, but in some of his shorter writings as well, and in some of his briefer writings, um where he talks about having divided government um and where he talks about having various he doesn't use this term specifically but what we today would call checks and balances uh and yes it certainly has had an influence on our founding fathers today i would say and this is something that i would like to go into more in my own research um there's you can even derive some Early market theory from a lot of what Machiavelli has to say about the, uh, you know, the pursuit of merit and the reward of excellence and uh, the the freedom or the leaving it to a republic's citizens to make experiment of their virtue and the power of fortune in private as well as public. I think that is such a great encapsulation of what liberty should look like, um, and we get that from Machiavelli. Um, that's what Machiavelli tells us should should happen in a republic, um, experiments of virtue and experiments of fortune. And so, yeah, you you get a lot of this really good stuff from him and it, it redounds into the present.
1: This was yeah. fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. Machiavelli getting a little bit of the noise turned down. I don't know if you can ever get to the whole truth. I think we got a little closer to it than just, you know, J.R. Ewing and Tupac, though. So not too bad. How do we do?
2: Fantastic! I real I this was such a blast. So thank you so much, Andrew. I, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to coming back. And uh, yeah, great questions.
1: We'll do it again soon. Thank you so much, right. my friend. Take care. Like to her, tell okay, he's back. It's just you didn't see the first time he was on here because we had a technology failure, so we're going to do it again. But that means I get to talk to him a second time. Smart guy, sharp guy, excited to see him. He's one of these bow tie people, too, so that's always exciting to see how he shows up dressed. Ethan Brown, my friend, how are you, sir? I'm good, thank you for having me again. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you back. Um, we're going to have you back again, except we're going to mean to this time. Uh, <laughs> you were writing about the Inflation Reduction Act, look. We're used to these omnibus bills. We're used to, they just call it whatever they want to, and then we jam in whatever they wanted to pass anyway, right? We've gotten used to this sort of thing. You took the angle, though, as they were talking about this thing was going to be great for the environment. Now, the environment was what kind of really held up Build Back Better, and then it was kind of a piece of the Build Back Mansion, which turned into the Inflation Reduction Act. So the environmental portion of this has always been contentious. What actually got in this bill, and is it actually going to do anything for the environment?
3: So, I think it depends on what your political philosophy is as to whether you might like the environmental provisions or not, because the approach the bill took is just investing a lot of government money into a lot of climate priorities. So, you can do the math, do the economics, and see that. These investments would have X effect on different clean energy industries, clean transportation, agriculture, etc., and see that there should be a drop in emissions. That said, you could question whether or not that's the right approach. There are obviously other approaches to try to get to the same result. So I tend to come at it from a perspective of I just want to see this get done. I tend to care a little less about how it gets done, but the the thing that I wrote about in my piece about the Inflation Reduction Act, which was in Real Clear Energy about a month ago, is I was concerned that they kept saying that there would be a 40% reduction in carbon emissions. And that's sort of true, but there's a lot more nuance to that statement. And I felt like it was coming off a little misleading. So happy to talk about that more as well.
1: Yeah. And start big picture with it for us, because what happens every time we talk climate, people want to throw a number with it. Now, this isn't unusual because they do the same thing with, you know, funding for roads or school funding or whatever. It feels like sometimes they just pick a number, then they get this data to say whatever number they want, because we all know that statistics can say whatever you want them to say. That 40 percent number, where does it come from? Does it actually mean anything? Because this one, especially when you start looking into it and how they got the number this one looks like they pretty much kind of picked this one out of thin air a little bit.
3: So it does come from something. They're saying that there would be a 40% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030 from 2005 levels. And people may not know this, but America's carbon emissions actually peaked in 2005. They've come down about 16% since then. And based on current trends, they were expected to come down another uh, down to like 26 or I believe 24% by 2030, just based on current policies, current behavior of the free market. So is going from 24% to 40% a big deal? Sure. But it's not all because of the Inflation Reduction Act. We're going back in time to set our initial target, or initial starting point rather, and we are ignoring the fact that emissions have come down since then and would have continued to come down since then. So I would just caution against policymakers taking full credit if we drop emissions by 40%, because even though the Inflation Reduction Act would contribute, it wouldn't do it all by itself.
1: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. You said they peaked out. Was that purposeful policy? Was it a little bit of inertia? Was it just technology and innovation kind of catching up as through the due course of events? Give me a little bit of a breakdown of that, because that number is probably going to surprise people because we, you know, we've gotten accustomed to climate alarmism as opposed to climate policy discussion, like a lot of things. Right. So that seems like a good piece of news somebody should be talking about, but you don't hear anybody talking about it. So break down that number, why we got there, why it peaked out and why in the world nobody's discussing it, especially people that want and care about that issue.
3: It's a great piece of news. It's something that makes me very excited, and I wish more people knew it. I think that there is certainly a political piece. I don't know how big that piece is uh, because 2005 was a ways back, but certainly we have seen a lot of other climate bills get done over the course of time. Maybe they're not termed climate bills, but then again, neither was the Inflation Reduction Act. They put inflation as the headline. So there are bills that have been working, taking some small steps toward emissions cuts, but I think a lot of it came on the technology side and on the economic side. Um, The cost of photovoltaic solar has dropped by 85% in the last decade. The cost of onshore wind has dropped by 55% in the last decade. And the cost of batteries for electric vehicles has dropped by 85% in the last decade. Meanwhile, consumption of coal dropped by 58% in the United States from uh, 2005 to 2019. So we're seeing that a lot of these Cleaner technologies are just becoming more economically viable on their own. That's a very exciting prospect for someone who cares about the climate or someone who just cares about cheap and reliable energy. So, yeah, I think there's a combination of factors at play. But certainly the technological piece has been one of the more exciting ones, in my view.
1: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. Uh, That's the technology piece. We're talking about the political piece. Let's talk about the emotional piece. You talked about it in your piece in Real Clear Energy. Again, we're going to link to it. Make sure you read the whole thing yourself. He's got a bunch of links in here, too. So read the links because he actually backs a lot of this up with data, and there's a lot of good perspective in here. Read it. Make up your own mind. You talk about the emotional part of this. This is a very emotional issue, probably too emotional for most people. People come at it emotionally before they get to the data, before they get to the science, before they get to the policy arguments of it. Talk about something like saying, well, we're going to do this 40% by 2030. Of course, for years and years, everything was 2020. We're past 2020 now. They pick a date, they pick a percentage, and then it's like, oh, we're going to do this. But does that actually help? Because you talk about things like if you start going towards alarmism, if you start going towards doom and gloom, there's actual scientific data, not from the climate side, from the psychology side, that people start turning this stuff off and don't want to pay attention to it and don't want to listen to it.
3: If people feel a certain level of fear or guilt about an issue, that can prompt them to act. But once it goes over a certain amount, then it just turns them off completely. Uh, I did a dual degree in college with environmental analysis and policy and film and television. Film and TV was in the College of Communication. And that was something that we learned in our very first communication class. So there's a really fine line you have to walk when you're trying to communicate an issue. I also find that people tend to be a lot more excited to hop on a moving train than a train that's standing still in terms of projects to work on, companies to go be a part of, and I think policy as well. So if we're saying 40% by 2030, if we're saying this is the first major climate bill to get done, I think that's a lot more overwhelming than exciting to hear. And so, I worry that by framing it like the Inflation Reduction Act is step one, it's just going to turn people off. It's going to make people feel like we're too late or what have you. Whereas, if we're talking about we've been making progress for decades and this is the latest step, then I think people might be a lot more excited. I was also concerned because for people who might not be as big a fan of the Inflation Reduction Act, be it political reasons or otherwise, it's kind of it excludes them a little bit. There are a lot of different ways to approach climate. This is not the only way to do it. And if we're saying this is the first and only big climate bill, then it might take people out of the climate conversation. Whereas I'd much rather people come in and say that wasn't the approach I would like, this is the approach I would like, and start to have those conversations and maybe have a more bipartisan approach next time around.
1: Brown joining us. This is fascinating because we learned this during COVID. It became readily apparent that scientists don't know how to talk to the general public. They speak two different languages. And it became really apparent that government bureaucratic scientists really, really don't know how to speak to the public. How much of the problems with communicating on things like the environment, like climate change, like just conservation, if you're more of the conservative and you prefer that nomenclature, how much of this is just a language and communication problem? Because when you do things like this, you do the alarmism, you're picking stats out that are you know, not inaccurate, but you're kind of floating them to get a certain number to look good on the PowerPoint slide. That's all communication problems. That builds distrust. That builds people not wanting to listen. That builds, like you said, with the alarmism, people wanting to turn it off. How much of this is a communication problem before you even get to the policy parts of it? There's
3: a huge communication problem, and I would not put it all on scientists. I think there's been issues from politicians, from journalists, from even folks in the climate communication world that I'm in. And it's challenging because this is a very serious issue. There are high stakes here. We're looking at a lot of important uh, ecosystems on our planet, we're looking at extreme weather events. We saw September have some really bad hurricanes, some storm surges, a historic heat wave here in California. So there's a lot of high stakes here and I think that can kind of ramp up some of the pressure to just feel alarmed. At the same time, we're not all going extinct on Thursday we know that there are ways to address this issue and there are ways to address it that can also improve the economy, improve our health, improve justice, improve national security, kind of take an approach that helps a lot more issues than we care about than just say, throw everything out, we need to get the climate done. We can kind of do everything. So I think there's a lot to be Concerned about, but also a lot to be excited about. And when I'm communicating, I try to put an emphasis on those solution options just as much as I do on the problems. I hope that more people can do that because ultimately I think that's where we might get more engagement and more productive conversations.
1: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. You give an example of how not to communicate this stuff. Uh, Now, to be fair here, every politician has done this, but in this particular case, it was President Biden saying, This is a quote. Every single Republican, every single one voted against tackling the climate crisis. And you said this is, of course, false because there's only two options, no climate action or the Inflation Reduction Act. We just saw it this week with uh, the continuing resolution for national funding. And if you voted against that, then you voted against disaster relief for the hurricane we just had. We've done this with the military for decades. If you don't vote for this massive bloated DOD bill, you hate the troops. If you don't vote for school funding, you hate the kids, on and on and on. We see this tactic all the time, but we already mentioned it. When you're talking about something that a lot of people are skeptical of, whatever you think, there's just skepticism about the climate and climate change. And there's a lot of just things folks don't understand and a lot of the science don't understand either. When you start putting black and white stuff like that, that is not helpful. It's not.
3: And to your point, it is a complicated topic. To wrap our heads around. It's something that is challenging for scientists to communicate to the public, and very often scientists don't know what the public doesn't know. Uh, climate change is absolutely, it's a, climate science is a new field of science, but that doesn't mean that we're not certain about a certain number of things. We can see exactly how the greenhouse effect works down to the carbon dioxide atoms where when infrared radiation hits it, the oxygen atom in the middle wobbles and the carbon atoms that creates some energy and then those atoms bump into each other and contain energy. And then we see a warming effect on the planet and we can see how that plays out in various natural disasters. There's stuff that is very certain, but that's challenging to communicate clearly. That's challenging for everyone to wrap their heads around. And then once we go to make policy about it, it's another challenge because the science and the policy starts to get intertangled, then you have facts and opinions getting intertangled, and suddenly the whole thing just raises skepticism. And there are parts of this that are facts and parts of this that are opinions. In my work, I always try to separate the two, but certainly that is a challenge for any communicator.
1: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us uh, from the sweaty penguin, which we'll talk more about a minute ago. I love that name so much. Let's be honest here. I, look, I've I've modulated on this a little bit. I, I don't think, you know, climate change is a scam, as some of the more hardcore people do. But I think there's scammers that take advantage of climate change. Climate change is a big industry. You're in it. You know, you make a living talking about this stuff. It is a business and an industry, even though there's a science part to it. Is there a responsibility for the folks in the climate uh, change area? Let me rephrase that is there a responsibility for the climate change sector and the activists and the people to maybe do a little bit more policing of their own? Because frankly, some of that skepticism, some of that uh, questioning, some of the climate stuff, they've brought that on themselves.
3: Absolutely. And I'll give you a little story. It was maybe a month or two ago, there was a article that came out in Scotland saying that 90 percent of plankton in the antarctic ocean had disappeared and a whole bunch of climate activists communicators on tiktok and other social media ran with this story did posts about it it kind of went viral and this was not anywhere close to the case if 90 percent of atlantic plankton were gone we would have noticed by now we might be gone ourselves that is the foundation of our marine ecosystems And that just didn't happen. Uh, These communicators were also saying that it was due to climate change, but I went back and found the original report that said this was not peer reviewed, and it was from a group that sells water filtration systems, and they were saying it was not due to climate change, but it was due to pollution that I presume their water filtration systems could help fix. So... I've seen things like this happen before, where I come in really hard, probably more than on anything else, to address climate communicators and say, we need to do a better job, because the facts of climate change are concerning enough, in my view. There is absolutely no reason to exaggerate things, to make up statistics, to take things out of context. The facts are very much a concern, and I think that that's more than enough to get people on board, anything beyond that and you just lose trust from people.
1: Nathan Brown joining us. Okay, but there's people that will still contest that. People can have honest opinions on this thing. Isn't a good way to do this, and I think this is something that we're having trouble with in media and politics and everything. We want to nationalize everything. We can't really do anything about the Inflation Reduction Act other than talk about it. We can't really do anything about, you know, a big conference in Switzerland where everybody has to take their private jets to it and have a big meeting about the environment, right? Should we be spending more time and effort, and by we, I mean everybody involved, because if you talk to a conservative and you talk conservation where they live, they're going to be open to that. And the environmental and climate change folks, should they be talking a little more about local things, local level, municipal level, state level, things people can actually do like going out and cleaning up their communities, like going out and working, you know, some forestry volunteer stuff, you know, just some basic stuff of taking care of the environment as it's traditionally labeled, you know, the nature, outdoors, things like this. I I think sometimes we get into the, the big picture stuff, we lose that there's a lot of that. And that would probably be an easier way to get into these things. And then you can discuss the bigger picture things. Is there an effort to kind of do that? Is that something that you see as well as lacking here? I've definitely seen the environmental movement start to take
3: steps in that direction. And I think I agree with you. That's a very good thing. It's a lot easier to care about something in your community than to think about globally something going on on the other side of the world and how our actions here can impact that. So yeah, the environmental movement, I believe, is starting to see that and starting to make some steps toward that. What I would hope that they do in doing that, which this I'm not sure is happening, there seems to be this idea of fighting for a cause and beating the opposition. And that's just silly to me. Everyone should care that they have clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. I don't think anyone does not want that. And so that means you can bring anyone in on any of these issues, specifically local issues where people will see it in their own backyards. So if there's some dispute going on where a environmental group is thinking, all right, we just need to get 51% of the population on board, I would really caution against that. I think it's much more productive to get everyone on board or at least as many people as possible because then as you move to other issues and other issues everyone's engaged people are on the same page and i think a lot more gets done and then that can even be scaled up nationally when everyone cares and everyone's
1: on board yeah i remember some of my dad told me years ago he's like you know winning by one vote isn't winning that's making half the people mad um so there's some good wisdom there okay ethan brown joining us Let's talk about Sweaty Penguin for a minute. I I love this. I love what you're doing, but I'll let you set it up. Tell people what it is. It's Boy, you got the branding down, so I can, you know, that's done. But tell people about, that's the sizzle. Tell people about the steak part of it, what you do with Sweaty Penguin. The Sweaty Penguin is
3: my podcast. It is a comedy climate podcast presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. And our goal is to make climate change and environmental issues less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. So we do two episodes a week. One of our episodes is called The Deep Dive, because we need a penguin pun. And those, we go into a specific environmental issue. We'll discuss what the problem is, how it affects the environment, economy, health, justice, etc. And then we'll talk about solutions. And rather than giving a specific solution and advocating for it. We'll discuss a variety of them and discuss the pros and cons and kind of let you make up your mind. That first segment is also a comedy monologue inspired by a lot of the late night talk shows. And then in the second segment, we'll interview an expert. And we've had professors on from 15 countries and six continents to talk about their research and kind of give you a glimpse into what they're doing. The other episodes, which come out on Wednesdays, are called "Tip of the Iceberg." Those are a shorter, newsier segment. So I'll do uh, another late-night style monologue, talking about whatever the big climate news story of the week was, giving some context, kind of breaking down any miscommunications or factual inaccuracies or that kind of thing. And then in the second segment, I'll take a question from an audience member. And if you have any climate questions, please send them in to us. We love answering those. So that's the Sweaty Penguin, and we're Two and a half years in. Uh, we had our 100th deep dive about a month ago, uh, which was really exciting. So, definitely on the up and up here.
1: Yeah, Ethan Brown joining us. I like that you do here. People forget things like, you know, like Rush Limbaugh had the biggest conservative talk show of all time. He did tons of humor. Like it was ingrained into what he did. Late Night uh, has gotten more political, but they intro it with humor. Saturday night Live's always been. Hit. How important is it when you have a really heavy topic like? the environment. You've got to have some levity in there just to give people, you know, some breathing room for one thing, because otherwise you just wear people out and their eyes start to glaze over. But also to give people kind of an entry and some levity into a heavy topic. It just kind of humanizes everything, doesn't it?
3: Absolutely. I ran both my high school and college satire publications, and that gave me a lot of insight into how comedy can be used to get people engaged in an issue, introduce people to an issue, bring in a larger audience on an issue. So I always had it in my head to kind of combine climate change and comedy, climate being something really overwhelming and depressing and confusing and comedy to make it a little more fun. I think people sometimes are confused how the two intersect, but I would encourage you to check out our podcast because that's, I love to write comedy about some of these difficult topics And I think that it makes it a lot more fun and a lot more interesting to learn about.
1: Hey, if the uh, Onion can file a brief in a Supreme Court case that gets rave reviews from everybody, why can't the Sweaty Penguin go live from the uh, universal function in Switzerland or wherever those sort of things are? Never know, man. Dream big. You might see what happens, right? That would be cool. Yeah. Ethan Brown. uh, You told us about it. Let folks know where they can find it, where they can follow you, the sweaty penguin, the other work and the writing you do. This piece that we've been talking about is in Real Clear Energy. We will link to it. We will also link to the sweaty penguin so you can subscribe and download that. But let folks know where they can find it until they see you again back on Hurtel, my friend.
3: Thanks for having me, Andrew. You can find The Sweaty Penguin on anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as thesweatypenguin.com and pbs.org slash promise. You can find us on any social media. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash where You can get merch, bonus content, and a lot more. You can also submit questions to Tip of the Iceberg. Like I said, we love answering people's questions, and so I hope to hear from you there. And if you want to find me personally, I'm on Twitter at EthanBrown5151.
1: Yep, where he talks about all kinds of interesting things like trying to distinguish what's on his arm. Is it a bug or a piece of chocolate? And I'll let you find that on his Twitter feed for your own. Ethan Brown, uh, good stuff. Enjoy the conversation. We'll have you back because we're going to be talking about this, I think, probably for the rest of our lives, but at least for the foreseeable future. Good stuff, my friend. We'll talk again real soon.
3: Sounds great. Looking forward to it.
1: Appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Now let me see you. Uh, Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, she is back. You can see her. She's right there if you're watching on YouTube. For you folks on the podcast, just have to take my word for it until she starts talking. She's actually in Alaska because she works for the Alaska Policy Forum as she talks to us today. Uh, She's also our West Virginia correspondent. Boy, you've got it covered side to side in the lower 48 and Alaska both, don't you? Quinn Townsend's back. How are you?
0: Good. How are you?
1: You're all over the place. How do you keep track? Like.
0: Um, Alaska and West Virginia are very similar in their energy policies, so that helps. Um,
1: (laughs) Just not the time (laughs) difference and the amount of daylight.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Which is it right now? Is it the too much daylight or too much darkness? Which time of the year are we in in Alaska right now?
0: Um, It's not too bad right now. It's about how it is um, out east, although it's still, it's seven o'clock in the morning here and it's still very dark, so...
1: Love it. If you ever get a chance to go to Alaska or West Virginia, both of those places need to be on your bug list, especially right now in the fall in West Virginia. It's just gorgeous. Uh, let's talk West Virginia. Um, everybody's favorite U.S. Senator, Joe Manchin, everybody's hero to hate. Um, this policy of his where he's trying to get this um reform done. Here's what happened. Let me just nutshell this before we get into the actual policy is the policy never got discussed because it was Build Back Mansion and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. And he got that through with the understanding he would get consideration on this bill. And then when he didn't, the, the news media and the commentary, it just went, ha, 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 Manchin didn't get what he wanted. And they moved on. But underneath that, there was actually a policy that whether you agreed with it or not, I think it's worth at least discussing. And that really got lost in all the national narrative, didn't it?
0: Yeah, it really did. Yeah, so... Just widely, broadly speaking, um, permitting reform would require faster approval of permits. So energy production permits, typically, um, that's not just fossil fuel, although that's what everyone throws around, but that also um, includes wind, solar, geothermal, hydropower, all of the energy production projects have to go through rigorous environmental studies and permitting approval, and they can take many, many years and millions of dollars depending how large the project is. And so permitting reform would simply require, there would still be environmental processes and approval, but there would be a requirement to make it faster. Um, Because when it takes five, six, seven years to get something approved when we need it next year, that's really not helpful for Americans who are struggling with their energy bills.
1: Yeah, uh, Quinn Townsend joining us. This isn't just about building stuff, though, too. This applies to all federal regulation. You used a real-life catastrophe example in your pieces in Real Clear Energy. We'll link to it like I always read the whole thing. She's got a ton of links in here that you need to click through to read all them, too. The Caldor fire out in California in 2021, the investigative report on that found, quote-unquote, regulatory delays, and the U.S. Forest Service made some mistakes on top of it as part of the blame for this. So the U.S. Forest Service, of course, is a federal institution. It's just like anything else in the government. It affects things like this as well, where they're trying to do things like land clearing, proper forest management. That all con- that involves construction that often involves third party contractors, things like this. So it's not mm-hmm. just pipelines and energy. That's a real world thing that really affects people's lives. And it's another example of something that needs to be sped up, especially before you have a crisis, because you got to prevent forest fires. not a lot you can do once they start.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Why did you go to that example other than just it's so glaring of like the government screwed this up and, you know, acres and acres of land burned up?
0: I think for everyone out West particularly, um, it's just a very stark example. It was a tragedy. And all of a lot of these fires, um, very large wildfires can be, if not prevented, at least they could have been much smaller if Um, The Forest Service and other um, agencies involved in land management were able to do what they needed to do um, to clean up forests, uh, to prevent wildfires being worse, which everyone who lives out west and has experienced the smoke or, God forbid, even had to leave their homes. That's, That's people's lives and livelihoods that the wildfires affect.
1: Yeah, um, Quinn Townsend joining us. You you hit on something in the beginning of that, though, out west. Part of the problem of federal regulation is we have a big, diverse country. You know, yeah. wildfires in California are different than wildfires in the Smoky Mountains or the Appalachians. Uh, there's water issues out west in California, the southern deserts, Nevada. There's a big water problem. The northeast doesn't have a water problem, but they've got other regulators. so You know, the north, south, the southern border we have a diverse country that's going to require some diverse regulatory reform on things like this. Part of speeding it up too is when you have trying to do a one size fits all for something this big, the bureaucratic machine's going to grind to a halt just out of the inertia of trying to do that. This would give us a little bit more flexibility, right?
0: Absolutely. Yes. And um, Senator Manchin's version of permitting reform didn't include as much um Involvement with states, but the other West Virginia senator, Senator Capito, I think I pronounced that correctly, she also introduced a permitting reform bill called the START Act, um, which I prefer. I think it goes a little bit further, and she includes um, some more reforms that include more state participation in this permitting reform because states know what they need better than the federal government does typically.
1: Yeah, and Part of this thing with the states when it comes to regulatory reform like this is the partnership between the states and the feds is somewhat broken right now. So Mm -hmm. when you look whether it's starting, that's not a perfect bill either. And neither is Manchin's proposal. But this is a part of our we talk about Washington doesn't work and our state governments don't work. Well, one of the reasons Washington don't work and state governments don't work is they were designed to work together. And when they don't, neither functions properly. And that's part of this conversation, whether it's regulatory or something else, that gets glossed over way too quick, doesn't it?
0: It does. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, I think part of it is overreach on one side. It's hard to be a good partnership if one side of the partnership is trying to do everything, which I would argue is the federal government. I'm sure not everyone agrees with that, but um especially in terms of federal dollars. So everyone's taxpayer dollars, the federal government um, has a lot of control over what states do when the federal government gives them money.
1: Yeah. And it comes down to the money. Quinn Townsend joining us. Um, Congress, of course, when you're talking regulatory form, you're not just talking process, you're talking allocations of funding. There's usually contracts involved in this. Is there a quick, clean way to get through this? There never is with Congress, but something like regulatory form, which seems to have some momentum behind it, because everybody's kind of, especially after COVID, everybody kind of realized how much the regulatory state not only exists, but how arbitrary some of it is, because we can just turn it on and off on a whim when crisis comes, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a better way to discuss something like this? So, like like we opened with Manchin brought this up. He was doing it as a political and deal and then people just kind of laughed it off because they personally either liked or didn't like what he did with the mother bill and the policy got lost. How do we highlight these policies? Because, you know, if you're for it or against it, this seems like a much more important conversation than whether Joe Manchin got what he wanted in the political grand scheme of things. Right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. My dream in my dream world, it would be that policies were important to people because they were, um, because they were good or bad and they weren't good policies aren't attached to political maneuvers like like mansions was. Um unfortunately, I don't think that's our reality right now. Um, so I'm not sure if there's I wish and hope that there's a there's a way to just talk about the policy and why it's permitting reform is important for the US, but um, it seems that good policy is always attached to politics. <laughs>
1: Yeah, unfortunately, they aren't, though. Uh, Quinn Townsend joining us. When we look at this overall picture, whether it's the start, which is a Republican proposal, Joe Manchin obviously proposed this. When we're looking at this, whether it's the Republican proposal or Joe Manchin's proposal, we have these big, dreamy, buzzwordy things. Clean Mm -hmm. energy, energy reform, you know, the EV revolution, all this stuff. To get there, folks are going to want to use regulation. It seems to me prudent that we stop before we go to the dream world stuff and go, do we even know how to do basic regulation before you go to regulate your choice? You know, pick whatever you want, because everybody has their own things they want the government to regulate and give them because they want that power. Right. We should have a little bit more uniform understanding of how, when and why to regulate things before we go
0: to that buzzwordy dream world. Right. Like you were saying. Sure. I think um, I think that's part of what some of these permitting reform bills do is. Just roll back some of the unnecessary um, regulations or at least decrease the impact of the regulations um, that are that are holding innovators back in the U.S.
1: Yeah. Quinn Townsend, uh, she's writing in real clear energy about this. Um, The mansion proposal is obviously dead. We opened with that because people were joking with it the START Act is probably DOA because it's, you know, it got caught in the wash as well, but Mm -hmm. we are going to have a new Congress coming in January. We don't know the shape of it. We know the Senate's probably still going to be close or tied. We know the House is probably going to go Republican. Is there going to be any movement for regulatory reform in this fashion uh, coming up? Do you think?
0: I certainly hope so. I think, um, it seems to me that republicans are making it more clear to the nation that they are interested in being a part of this overall environmental conversation rather than just saying the environment's fine because that's traditionally that's kind of what um the average person thinks that republicans don't care about the environment and aren't interested engaging in this climate change conversation um, and i think conservatives in general are making it more clear that they are interested in being a part of that conversation.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. We keep covering it. We keep having new folks on. I think I think some of this is the language is starting to change. I think it's a generational shift as well. Quinn Townsend Mm -hmm. uh, back with us. Normally, our West Virginia correspondent for the Alaska policy folks, which she's actually in Alaska today, uh, between your travels and until we get you back on again, let folks know where they can follow you, keep up with you and what you got going on, my friend.
0: Sure. So I'm the policy manager at Alaska Policy Forum. So if you're interested in Alaska policy stuff, our website is a great place to see my work. Um, If you're interested in my energy and environment um, work, I'm on Twitter at Quinn Townsend numeral one. I think there's an underscore. I'm not super active on Twitter, but that's where you can find me online
1: yep and she's another one of our great young voices contributors always enjoy having her on we'll keep having her on look forward to talking to you again when you get back to the lower 48 and a little bit warmer weather quinn townsend thank you so much for the time my friend
0: thanks for having me on
1: yes ma'am now let me
4: see you go off like a bomb
1: Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's back. We always enjoy talking to our friend, Travis Nix. He is in D.C. He's at Georgetown because he's one of them real smart fellers. We love talking to him. Going to talk a little taxes today. Travis, how are you, sir? Good to see you again.
5: I'm good. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, glad to have you back and not for you to tell me I'm wrong this time, unlike last time, but we won't talk about that nor hold it against you. Uh, you're in the Wall Street Journal writing. That's a good gift, by the way. Congratulations. You're talking taxes and the law. I want to start with some basic background because taxes is another one of those things. Look, taxes is most people's main engagement with their government. They pay their taxes right. This is so foundational to our government that this is, it's not an overblown statement. This is how we wound up with a Constitution because the Article of Confederation, they couldn't get the tax stuff right. So they sat down. Our whole system of government is based on the government's ability to tax and who taxes and why they tax. I think we need to start there before we get to the legal stuff and what's going on now, because I just don't think there's a good fundamental literacy on what taxes are are not should be and have become when they shouldn't have been. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah. No, yeah, you're completely right. Taxes are definitely foundational to our constitutional background. You can make the argument that our whole Constitution is based on trying to eliminate discriminatory taxes, discriminatory tariffs, stuff like that. So when we think about taxes, ideally, we just collect as much taxes as we need to fund the government, to fund very specific priorities that the government has, and we want to raise the taxes in the most economically efficient way possible. So you want to raise the tax revenue in the way that does the least amount of damage to the economy, because all taxes take money out of people's pockets, obviously. Uh, to fund government projects, which creates a economic loss and inefficiency. So the way that you make the tax code more efficient is you raise the revenue in a way that doesn't distort people's choices. So it's trying to eliminate discriminatory taxes, basically.
1: Yeah. And we understand that that's not a utopian thing. You know, the founding fathers did not ride unicorns in and sign all this in Magic Ink that, you know, binds people forever. These are human beings. We understand that there's government bureaucracy. We understand there's government bloat. That's why we have separation of powers, judicial review, and the legislative branch was given the power that purse. the entire idea of this government. And I'm just making this into a small ball so we can talk about it. It's much more complicated than this. The whole idea was taxing and funding of our government was supposed to have layers of oversight. It was supposed to have accountability, And it was supposed to have multiple people's hands in who does it, why they do it, and how it gets allocated, right?
5: Yeah, exactly, 100%. Congress is supposed to set the tax rate based on what they want to fund. The president obviously has veto power. He can propose his own budget to try and get Congress to pass it. And there are judicial protections all throughout the Constitution for taxes. For example, you can't impose a direct tax like a property tax. We can't have a national property tax without it being apportioned based on state population, which is impossible. So the framers definitely tried to make it as difficult as possible for people to tax um, until the 17th or 16th amendment made it a lot easier with the income tax.
1: Yeah, Travis next joining us. Okay, that's the ideal. As we sit right now in the year of our Lord, 2022, where we can't even get a budget in its traditional form passed, where we don't have a Congress that's working in good order. And I don't mean good order is in good. I mean, good order is in the way they're supposed to function. Um, How far off of that are we right now? Because it seems like we're clear off the map on it where we're doing. You know, we're just doing one right now, continuing resolution, just keep the government going. We always have funding crisis every October. How far off the mark are we from what the ideal was? Uh,
5: we're so far off what the ideal was because, like you said, with all these continuing budget resolutions where there's really no oversight on the funding, there's really a disconnect between taxes and spending because we have so much of a deficit, we're so much in debt. Our tax a lot of our tax money, Um, It doesn't cover the spending, obviously. That's why we have to borrow so much in debt. So it's a complete disconnect from what we should be. And we have, obviously, economically harmful taxes riddled throughout the tax code. So much ambiguous provisions that if you don't comply with, the IRS can go and slap, slap a very fat penalty on you that's just punitive. It doesn't help them recover the revenue at all.
1: Yeah, Travis next joining us. Let's talk about the IRS for a second because it's been all over the news. We'd know about the 86,000 new IRS agent. I think a more helpful way to do this is to kind of talk about the IRS, the way we've had to start talking about the military, the way we've had to talk about education the last few years. Anything that has a government bureaucracy attached to it really has two parts. It has the actual function that you have to have. And the IRS has a very important function. They need to collect the taxes. They need to enforce the taxes. They need to distribute the money. They need to distribute things like refunds back. They have an important function. Then, on top of that, you have all these layers of bureaucracy that does all the bad stuff you're talking about. How do we have that conversation? Like the military, you know, the military is very important, but we also say, oh, this is for the military and it goes to some, you know, office out in Arlington somewhere. Same thing with education. Same thing with everything. How do we get into that conversation about the IRS is like, yes, there's needed funding to upgrade how they process taxes. It's a mess. But we also don't want this enforcement arm getting out of control. And the bureaucracy doesn't need to continue to grow. That caused the problem with the collection of taxes in the first place.
5: Yeah, I think it really starts with more IRS oversight. So a lot of people don't know this, but the IRS actually has an oversight board that the president is supposed to appoint this oversight board has basically been empty since 2010. So it essentially doesn't exist anymore. And what they're supposed to do is file a yearly report about ways the IRS can improve itself, improve its customer service, making sure they're not doing very punitive um, practices that have no other purpose other than to harm taxpayers. So I think IRS oversight really starts with trying to fill this IRS board And then hopefully Congress will start listening to them. Congress should be having more hearings and stuff like that to figure out where all this new money is going to and try and limit it to less for enforcement and more for improving customer service. So when someone calls the IRS, when a normal taxpayer calls the IRS to figure out how they're supposed to do their taxes, someone will actually pick up the phone, which doesn't happen anymore.
1: Right, or you know, they could actually try to do messaging and things like everybody else in the world's doing these, yeah. folks. If you've listened to the Heard Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast district of conservation it's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from dc and beyond from topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices listen to district of conservation on apple podcast or wherever podcasts are played It's Travis. Next, joining us. Let, let's just go there with it. We understand you need to enforce taxes. We know because the IRS themselves admitted it a few years ago. They don't go after the the big people because they don't. Have, they say it's not funding. The really rich, of course, have the ability to fight it and drag it out. Court, tax cases are incredibly complicated. You can speak to that as somebody that studies the law. How do we make sure that it's not just them going after the low hanging fruit? Not that people that, you know, don't make a lot of money, don't cheat on their taxes. They do. But there needs to be a proportionality. You know, do they really need to be leveling 140% fines against people's homes over a couple thousand dollars of taxes? Is there things they can do financial penalty wise? Can they have some kind of a gradient system instead of just, you know, going straight to garnishing people's wages? There seems like there's a whole spectrum of options in here. And yet, when it comes to enforcement, they just want to go straight to the sledgehammer all the time.
5: Yeah, I think the problem is, so everyone has like a taxpayer bill of rights that's supposed to offer all of these protections. It's something when Congress reformed the IRS into in the 1990s that they did. And this basically your bill of rights, it has all these rights of how the like an audit is supposed to go and it's supposed to offer all these protections for taxpayers. It's unenforceable. A court has never enforced it. So I think that if we could get something like that, that could actually make it enforceable. And we can have it can be judicially enforced, or we can have just the court start interpreting the constitution again because we have an Eighth Amendment that's supposed to protect people from excessive fines. And the tax code's riddled with 50% fines. It can even be higher than that in certain cases, that if we can start striking those down, those penalties down as excessive fines that serve no purpose other than to punish
1: taxpayers. Uh, The Eighth Amendment is not one of the sexy ones. It's not the First Amendment. It's not the Second Amendment. We don't have people walking around with, you know, Eighth Amendment tattoos like they do with the second one. Right. Uh, We don't have whole organizations built around the First Amendment like we do with that, which we should because those are important. People don't know that Eighth Amendment. So just real quick, making sure we got everybody on the same song sheet here. Just walk through what the Eighth Amendment does. More importantly, what it doesn't do, because when we're talking constitutional law, these things were written a little bit open-ended on purpose. So walk us through the Eighth Amendment.
5: Yeah, so everyone knows the Eighth Amendment because it prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. That's just one of the clauses in it. There's about five clauses in it. And one of the clauses that I think can be the most useful for taxes is there's a prohibition against excessive government fines. Um, This is a right that dates all the way back to the Magna Carta. It's in the English Bill of Rights and then we adopted it in our own constitution and supposed to protect people, protect American citizens against excessive um, fines in connection to a crime. So criminal fines, which do exist, as well as civil fines in a purely civil lawsuit of the government coming after people for unpaid taxes, stuff like that, and then slapping them with a 100 percent fine.
1: Yeah. And here's this is where this legally and your piece in Wall Street Journal, you're talking about the courts intervening. Fines and taxes are legal definitions. Those are legal terms. This is probably mostly known for folks from the Roberts decision and the ACA ruling where it's like, was it a fine or is it a tax? And we will hash that out some other time. It's a fine line. It's a moving line walk folks through that though because to the average american whether it's a fine or a tax it's the exact same thing it's money coming out of your pocket so they don't see the difference we also see this this is a big problem in the criminal justice system too fines punitive fines for punishment tax code wise judicial wise. walk us through that the differences and why it's so important whether it's a fine or a tax because legally there's a lot of restraints on one and the other one's pretty ambiguous isn't it
5: yeah so A tax is obviously, that's something that Congress passed for the purpose of raising revenue. There's no punishment purpose. It's Congress saying, this is what we need to raise to fund the government. A fine is something on top of that. So it's something that when the IRS comes to you and says that you owe $100, and then they're going to say, no, you don't really owe $100. We're also going to impose a $50 on top of that, $50 on top of that. To punish you for not doing your taxes right, or whatever, or to say we need these fines in order to deter other taxpayers from making the same mistake you did. So it has a, a, a criminal justice aspect to it in terms of people. They they it's a it has a deterrence purpose.
1: All right, have us next joining us. I've seen this personally with people that got into trouble with the IRS. They go after your homes. They go after your wages. I know one case where they actually went after the house and property of a guy's mother-in-law because they didn't think they could get enough equity out of his stuff. People do not understand the wide-ranging powers the IRS has to investigate, to take, to levy these liens. Just, I, it's, it's expansive, but try to explain to folks... You know, they talk about a cop coming to your house and you just say, well, I got a warrant and they got to kind of hold them up. The IRS has some power even beyond things like that. They're they're well nigh unpregnable to the average American when the IRS shows up at your door. And it's really scary stuff for folks that probably need to know how powerful they really are. Yeah. Yeah.
5: I mean, it starts it starts at the beginning. It starts with the audit. They can basically audit your tax return for any reason. They don't have to have any suspicion. That you're wrong, they can just look at it to confirm that you are right. And so, once that happens, once they start looking at your return, that's an audit and it goes from there. And it could take years, it could take months, it just depends on the amount of receipts that you have because taxpayers are guilty until proven innocent. So, when the IRS looks at your tax return, taxpayers have to prove through documentation that their math and their deductions and everything's right. The IRS um does not have to prove that they are right in court and then once the irs um gets you for something they have very there is an irs manual that they have to follow and there is a judicial process on putting liens against people's homes and stuff but they have very vast collection power uh to seize your assets seize your homes garnish wages um, to be able to collect your unpaid tax.
1: Yeah, and you're talking the judicial side of this, but really most of the problems when it comes to the IRS, and we're bashing them a little bit here because they deserve it, but to be fair to the IRS, they're supposed to be governed by Congress. They're supposed to have pretty strict you know, boundaries put on them by Congress, And we have a Congress that's not really been interested in putting boundaries and guardrails on the government, let alone taking care of their financing, let alone taking care of their funding to things that they really need, like updating how you do your taxes and fixing all those piles of paper sitting around and not doing things like, you know, funding the bureaucracy that makes the problem worse. How much give me the ratio, how much of this is a judicial problem? How much of this is a congressional problem?
5: Well, it's all a congressional problem because Congress is the one who wrote these penalties in the law. So, like one of the pieces that are in my article that I wrote, there's a penalty for if you don't report a foreign bank account to the IRS, the IRS can either take $100,000 or 50% of whatever ever in that bank account. That's a Congress, that's a congressional problem because Congress is the one that gave the IRS the discretion to make that decision when it should probably just be, you know, a flat $100,000 versus if you have a five million bank dollar bank account, they can take two and a half million, which is what the IRS did in one of these cases pending for the Supreme court. But it's also a judicial problem because when Congress makes the mistake of writing in a very excessive punitive penalty, the court are not stepping in to say that they can't do this, that this fine, this penalty is so outrageous that it's unconstitutional. The courts aren't willing to step that in. So it's a Congress It's a congressional problem because Congress created the problem, but the judiciary is not providing a remedy to taxpayers who are being hit with these fines.
1: So talking remedies, what do we do about it? Because people are looking at the IRS and go, man, they're they're well nigh, you know, all powerful as far as the American citizens concerned. There's nothing I can do about that. Congress is, you know, a mess. They're not going to do anything about it. You know, the Supreme Court, who knows where that's going to go? I can see the frustration. American citizens just throwing their hands up and going, what? But we also don't want them to be, you know. Some of the fear mongering that's going on, like you know, eighty seven thousand IRS agents. No, not all eighty seven thousand of them are on a SWAT team is going to kick in your door. That's ridiculous too. But a legitimate concern. What do we do about this?
5: I think it's it starts with Congress, obviously, because people have the most control over Congress. Making sure that congressmen are aware of these problems, because I think I don't even think if you were to ask every the average congressman what's in the tax code what types of penalties do you impose on taxpayers they would have no idea so i think it's an educational thing that we need to educate as scary as this sounds we need to educate congressmen on the consequences of their decisions and bring some of these stories that i talk about in my piece to light on what the irs can actually do to someone
1: yeah travis next um just to get personal for a second, I, I I had a very close friend who went through a thing with the IRS. I've seen other people do it. I've read some real horror stories on what they can do to your lives. I just touched on it, but I want to hit it again. The enforcement angle of this went viral because that just scares the bejeebus out of people. It just scares folks, and it should because they have a lot of power. Our government's supposed to work for us. So when you have something that's going to have an innate thing that everybody hates, like collecting taxes, we talked about educating, you know, the people in Congress. We also need to educate the American people a little bit about, hey, yes, they need to collect taxes because before you can really complain about it, you need to understand what it should look like when it's fully functional. Right. So how do we educate them? Like, look, this is why we're complaining instead of just fear mongering about it. Go, look, this is why we're complaining about the enforcement part because the part of them actually collecting the taxes and you can pull up on Google, the pictures of just stacks of paper in the cafeterias of the IRS because they can't put it anywhere. That kind of stuff. How do we educate the American people? How do we educate us so that we're better for this discourse and this discussion as well?
5: Yeah. I think the IRS has some culpability on this just because they don't, the IRS likes to have play everything close to the vest. They don't like to talk about, how bad their problems are because they think that if they reveal all this to the American public, that then more people will cheat on their taxes. So they don't want to talk about how they have thirty-year-old computer systems and stuff like that. I think it's hard. So it's very hard to educate the average American on the IRS's customer. will called customer service problems when the IRS itself doesn't really like to talk about it in public form. So I think the IRS also needs to get more comfortable talking about its procedures and trying to show to the American people that they are not the big bad wolf. They are, that they are not going to come kick down your door, that a lot of them, they're just good people trying to do their jobs. And then they're just, they're hand tied by Congress that this is what Congress wrote for them. So I think the IRS needs to You never see a public press conference by the head of the IRS. You never see it from the IRS commissioner. I think it should be a much more visible position in American law and in American politics so that people actually have a figurehead and they just don't see the evil in the IRS that they're actually trying to do their job, stuff like that. I think that would go a long way in improving the IRS's image with a lot of Americans.
1: Travis, next joining us. I think this is an important point because I think this is one of the lessons of COVID where government officials did a really bad job of just messaging and basic communicating. We learned, we just talked to our friend, Michael, Dr. Michael Siegel about this. We learned that scientists don't know how to talk to normal average American people. We learned that the government scientists are even worse at it. We learned that bureaucrats don't speak media. We learned that the media don't know how to ask questions of the bureaucrats and the scientists. I think this same problem applies to the IRS. I think they're still under the mentality. The FBI has got the same problem, by the way, they still think they're this institution that's above it all. And you're not anymore. And you have to communicate to the people because the people have a whole lot of power to talk back, to promote their own stories, to they can record on a phone when your agent comes to their house. Now that's probably going to start happening. I think there's an institutional thing here where these institutions are used to just being a part of the bureaucracy and technology has changed it and the people have some power now, like, no, this bureaucracy is still ours and you need to answer to us. They should probably get ahead of it and start communicating to the people directly a lot better. And I know that's going to be hard and it's going to be messy. That's a whole of government problem, I think, that's really expanded on what you just said.
5: Yeah, exactly. As with this new IRS funding package that the Democrats passed, not one time have you seen in the mainstream media, uh, the head of the IRS, the IRS commissioner, actually, we don't even have an IRS commissioner right now. So that's, that's a, that's a whole different story. Biden probably going to nominate somebody, but there's not even the head of the IRS right now. Biden's worried about, they can't get Senate confirmation. So he just hasn't nominated anybody to take over from the Trump administration. So like, But we don't even have a deputy secretary. Nobody has actually gone out and communicated to the public effectively on how they are going to use this money and what it's going to be used for. And I think that would go a long way in um, restoring, trying to restore relations with the American people.
1: Yeah, and government has to have a relationship with the people. That's where a cause of a lot of these problems are. It's a lot bigger topic for another day, but that that's the core to a lot of our cultural and political problems right there is the government and the people got to work together both ways. And people aren't great about it either. Um, but this really, you know, when, when you have a, a organization that can wreck your life, it's really important that you're at least communicating correctly. Travis Nix, this is great stuff. This piece has a lot of in-depth stuff to it. Make sure you read the whole thing. We'll link to it. Read it for yourself. It's in the Wall Street Journal uh, because he's an up-and-coming guy, and we're lucky to have him. Uh, Till we get you back on Hurtel again, my friend, let folks know where they can keep up with you and what you've got going on.
5: Uh, Easiest ways on Twitter, at Nix N-I-X, 113. Thank you so much for having me again. Always happy to be on.
1: Yep, and we don't even hold it against him that he's a Villanova Georgetown Cubs fan. I think you may be the only person I know that's that trifecta, but that's pretty amazing.
5: Thank you. <laughs> All
1: right, buddy. We'll talk again soon. Talk soon.
5: Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you sir.
1: Her tell, okay, one of our favorites, good friend of the program, Sharp, always brings a great point of view. Gabriella Hoffman has returned to her, telling, boy, howdy, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We're going to talk to her about everything from Vladimir Putin to cheating at fishing. Seriously, Gabby, good, great to have you back. How have you been?
6: I've been good. Busy, as you know. I know that's a typical answer I give, but I have been busy but productive and can't complain. Now I get to take a break from travel and get to focus more so on doing commentary and whatnot. But yes, a lot to unpack with you stemming across a whole wide swath of issue areas.
1: Let's start with Russia. Vladimir Putin, who is selling, braiding a birthday, or as I call it, one year closer to God straightening him out. Um, (laughs) Seriously, though, I want to change how we view this for a second, because obviously the war in Ukraine, that's a black and white thing to anybody that's a functional adult. He invaded another country. We talk about the bad stuff. I want to highlight this a little differently, because if you look at the countries that are really bearing the burden on this thing, The Polands, the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, they're not just bearing the burden. These are success stories for what happened with countries that got away from the influence of first the old Soviet Union and Vladimir Putin. He's been leaning on all these countries the entire time he's been in power. I think this is an important part of the narrative, especially for people in the West that have freedom of speech, that have free press. We have platforms. We need to be talking about the contrast here. And I think that's a more productive thing. Of course, we can highlight the bad, but show like, look how much freedom there's been. Look at the innovation. Look at the economic explosion. Places like the Baltic states. Look at how Poland is now leading the way of the European alliance against Russia and Ukraine. Why don't we highlight that stuff? Because that's just as important as the bad stuff.
6: I think because where we are in fighting the culture wars, which is a noble fight, I will definitely say that, and I think there are important ones that are to be made and had there. But unfortunately, when you apply American culture wars to foreign policy in some respects, you lose sight of the essence of what is at stake here, what freedom means, what you know, having uh, allied relationships entails. And I've noticed a little bit on Twitter. I don't think so much in real life, but I'm a little worried about our compatriots on the right who are tweeting certain things saying that Russia is this noble, Thing we can't anger Russia, we can't provoke Russia, uh, because they have shared values and identities with us. And I, I want to remind your listeners that Russia was actually the first country uh, to put Marxism into practice, realistically speaking, and, and, and with very bloody consequences. And Putin is not really much of a departure from his Soviet predecessors, much he was KGB, and KGB is a relic from the Soviet times, and KGB things of that sort. So he was groomed and ingrained in that philosophy. He's not changed. He's not different from what he was when it was the Soviet era in Russia. Now with modern Russia, which is maybe a little more free, but it's not improved. It's it's not where Russia could be. You have these inclinations to neo-Soviet times. Like if I wrote one of my first breakout pieces for townhall.com when I started doing commentary writing on a bigger scale was that Russia still was hearkening back to the past. It was 2013, it was I think on the 50th anniversary of Stalin's death, and there was polling conducted among the Russian populace and take it for what you will, a lot of it is very warped and contorted, but a lot of the Russian populace were very, I would say, wish-casting for Stalin. They missed him, they said he was a positive figure who had positive contributions and Putin was similarly viewed in the same vein as Stalin. And I know this as you very well know and some of your listeners know because I am of Lithuanian descent and it's not about me and it's not about my being Lithuanian, but being a child of immigrants, uh, political refugees who fled the Soviet Union to come to this country. My parents instilled an understanding of the Kremlin. And this is not to say you conflate the Kremlin with all Russian people. I think that's a big mistake. Some people do that. Uh, But unfortunately, much of the Russian populace has not challenged Putin. And a lot of them do agree, unfortunately, with his atrocities. But you you take it from a Baltic perspective or an American perspective by way of like one generation or so from the Baltic states, Lithuania was the first of 15 nations to break away from the Soviet Union. Poland was similarly controlled by the Soviet Union, but they had their own separate dictator premier in charge, but they were not formally part of the 15 countries. Um, Ukraine was part of the 15 occupied bloc that comprised the official Soviet Union, but Poland and Czech republic and other countries were heavily influenced by the soviet union so a, a clear distinction to make there but all of them were under the sphere of influence of the ussr but the baltics just because it's in their nature they did not like being dual uh, facing dual occupation during both first they had soviet then it went back to then it went to nazi occupation then 50 plus years nearly 50 plus years of soviet occupation again So the Baltic countries haven't really been understood. And I think the West turned a blind eye here in the States, we turned a blind eye to their plight. They were, my parents always said they were promised, you know, help from America and America did help a little bit, but they made a lot of concessions to the USSR. And that's a whole nother uh, (laughs) journey to go down to or a rabbit hole to go down on. But the Baltics are an example of what happens when countries have the aptitude and the fortitude to be independent and to really make success for themselves. The Baltics, not only Lithuania, Lithuania's in my view, I, I I like where it is right now. I don't agree with some of the leadership at times. I may be questioning, you know, their foray into the EU. I think the EU does hamstring them. The Baltics are largely prosperous because they were able to break away. They joined NATO. They are very prosperous. Estonia, I would say even a little bit more technologically speaking, they have Skype, which is a popular mode of communication. People use to record interviews and to host calls, and and they are just a case study of what happens when you have free markets reintroduced, them being for free markets, them being very anti-communist. Lithuania is one of the most outspoken countries against the CCP and also the Kremlin. Very few countries are very boldly taking stances against the CCP like Lithuania is. They even have jeopardized some of their standing in Europe because they are supporting Taiwan as well. They're not adhering to the one China policy. So, that kind of snapshot overview points to the fact that when countries are able to detangle themselves from Russia on their own volition, which is what Lithuania wanted for the longest time, same with Estonia and Latvia and Poland and other countries that were influenced by the USSR as well, they can be prosperous and they can be a clarion call not only to the United States, but also to their Western European neighbors about what not to do. Now you see friction between Germany, France, and other Western Western European countries and Eastern European countries about taking moral stances against the CCP, uh, divesting from Russian dependent or dependence on Russian oil and gas, and so we should look to the Baltics as an example. We should align ourselves with them better, and similarly adopt that view with Ukraine. Ukraine is not a perfect country; it does have corruption. Russia was able to kind of deceive. Ukrainians and say we're brothers in arms, we're very similar, we like the same food, we kind of talk in similar dialects and languages. But Ukrainians and Russians are totally different people. They're different ethnicities, they have different languages. And Ukraine is a lot older than Russia if we look at establishment and historical uh, evidence of that. So they're two distinct countries. They do sound very similar to the outsider, but they need to be viewed in distinct lenses. And we can criticize the government. I'm worried about funding going to Ukraine being used Properly. I think that's a concern for everyone. And I think with respect to Ukraine, people don't want to see war break out. No one, to my knowledge, is calling for American boots on the ground. We were like, Ukraine, this is your battle. We're going to give you guys weapons. We're going to give you guys supplies. We want you to fight. We want you to win. I think that's a good middle ground position without going into full scale war. But that's kind of an overview of Eastern Europe, kind of from my own understanding of it, talking to people, still having family there. And with respect to the NATO question, if we didn't have NATO. I think, like I said, I think NATO is less controversial than the EU. They're not steeped so much into politics like the EU is, unfortunately. But NATO, if Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia were not in NATO currently, I would have relatives who would be displaced persons right now. (laughs) So that goes to show the strength of NATO, however imperfect of an institution it is.
1: Yeah, I'm about to up to my neck to Ukraine skirt was two short arguments on, you know, excusing Russia, but that's just me. Gabriella Hoffman joining us. Something you just touched on in there that's really important, though, is the perceptions of these things. We just had a poll out. 73% of Americans in this poll still believe the U.S. Can t- should continue to support Ukraine despite mm-hmm. the threats of nuclear weapons. This is one of those Twitter ain't real life pundits aren't yes. all the way connected things sometimes. A friend of mine that I follow on Twitter, Lauren Crow, had a really interesting point on this. He said, interesting that, I'm quoting him here. 30 years after the end of the Cold War, America still seems to intuit, just intuitively know, the optimal response to nuclear threats. I bet this has more to do with many Americans' firsthand experience and distaste with bullying than with our shared understanding of some game theory. But hey, I think he's really on to something here because most people are not ate up on geopolitics. Most people don't even understand things. Most people probably couldn't pick out the Baltic countries on a map or a list no. or anything else. <laughs> They inherently don't like bullies in America. They know when a country invades another country or leans on another country. There's just something inherently American where we don't like Mm -hmm. that. We over talk these things and principles and geopolitics. I think he's onto something there on why the base level American is going to support Ukraine over Vladimir Putin 10 out of 10 times, usually.
6: Absolutely. And your friend is correct in that respect because I think the Cold War is still very fresh in a lot of people's minds, even people around our age. I'm in my early 30s, and for me, I am a descendant of people who escaped that system, and my grandparents had it really, really bad. Uh, They were in various labor camps. My grandpa on my mom's side survived 18 months in a Russian gulag on the Finnish-Russian border, so those horrors are very raw to me. I understand what Russia is capable of, even though I don't hold a foreign policy credential I'm just very attuned to these issues. I have friends in Eastern Europe. I have friends who deal very deeply in these issues as well. I have one one of my friends is making the maps that everyone sees from the Institute for the Study of War. My friend George Barros is responsible for putting out those maps. And I lean on him and others who are fully vested in this issue to get information, to extrapolate. And I have a lot of Ukrainian friends. It's a personal thing. You talk to Ukrainians who came here because they either grew up in the last vestiges of they escaped the last vestiges of the Soviet Union, their parents, their grandparents remember what happened in Ukraine with Russian occupation, with Golodomor, which is one of the worst genocides ever that people, especially in Russia, continue to downplay. And I think it goes back to your friend's point. And it's really interesting to me, kind of separate but it similarly related. I see a lot of people who call themselves conservative and anti-communist, yet they're rooting for Russia over Ukraine. And that principally strikes me as inconsistent. How can you say you're anti-Marxist and you're championing, or you're kind of leaning with, or, or you're you're siding with Russia over Ukraine? Not or being ignorant of history about what Russia did to Ukraine, the the Marxist policies that were imposed there, the genocide, the famine, uh, the various uh, imprisonments and and, and victim victimization of individual Ukrainians. It is true that people, even with the influence of Twitter, and I think a lot of people, like I said, they're steeped into culture wars and they're applying what's happening here to the conversation in Ukraine. And they're, I think they're mistaken to do that because this is a totally different issue. And it doesn't mean that uh, you can't care about what happens domestically and not care about what happens abroad. I think some people on the right are falling into the trap that you only can care about one subset of issues or one issue. And we're not made, we're not structured like that as human beings and as political commentators. We can focus on many things, we can address many issues to limit ourselves and to stand idly by and be quiet when Russia is doing this. Just like I said, even from a moral standpoint, it is a lot of cognitive dissonance online, but I am encouraged by polls. I am encouraged by people outside of Twitter because I think Twitter, again, it does lean far to the left, but when it comes to certain elements on the right, Twitter is not a full representation of what Republicans or center right folks are thinking. You talk to most people and they say, Yeah, I do support Ukraine's plight. Is it entirely perfect? No, but I know who's the enemy here. I know who should win here. And we want to see freedom prevail over tyranny. Going back to Ukraine's plight, historically speaking.
1: Gabriel Hoffman joining us. I think that's an important thing to take away from this when we deal with Vladimir Putin for this reason, he chose to do this. And I think, especially in the West, because we have this real level of, look, if you get a right and talk for a living, you're pretty privileged. Let's just be honest about this. The commentary in the news media in the West, especially in America, we lose perspective on these things really quick that, Hey, sometimes in history, frequently, you just get a really bad actor that is impervious to logic and reason, and you've got to deal with them because they're going to push until they make you deal with them. And I think too much of this, we try to put our Western spin on it and don't realize, like, for whatever reason Vladimir Putin did this, he was trying to get a national unification moment. He really does want to put together, not that even the Soviet, the old imperial Russian empire, yeah. what he's really looking to do. He's got age. Uh, There's all kinds of rumors about his health situation. Mm -hmm. Whatever triggered this in his mind to make this logically horrible decision, because everybody knew that, like, look, even if you take it, you can't hold it. I don't think we do a really good job in Western punditry and commentary of just acknowledging, like, there's bad faith actors, peace is the exception, war is the norm historically, and we should prepare ourselves for that thing. I think we're a little spoiled, and it shows when we go to deal with things like Vladimir Putin and the really bad actors in the world.
6: Absolutely. And I think people underestimate his influence. People say, well, China's the bigger threat than Russia. And that may be true. I don't deny that. I think China is a huge threat. But people forget that the Kremlin and the CCP are very in sync. They're very much aligned. They have the same goals. And it was because of Soviet Russia that there was a Mao Zedong, that there was the Great Leap Forward. People, again, not knowing history can be your downfall as a commentator. You should have some depth and perception and not look at, like, a very small time frame. You need to look big picture. We see this kind of small, isolated, big picture analysis, or small picture analysis concentrated not only on foreign policy, you see it on environmental issues. People look at a small scope, and then they make their assumptions and their claims through that without looking at the big picture. When you look at the big picture, you could see that Russia has been agitating a lot of the world's adversaries. They've been involved, they've shared ideas, they've trained militarily, they've Uh, signed memorandums of understanding. They've they've worked in sync. Russia and China have worked in sync. And we haven't pushed away Russia to fall into the arms of China. They've been working behind the scenes for a very long time. And you can view both of those as threats. Uh, One may be more immediate. The other may be uh, more, you know, more kind of in the periphery, in the background. But you can view, like I said, you can deem problematic. You You can deem uh, different um, adversaries as problematic and and assess what pr- threats they pose. And so that that's kind of short-sighted to say like, well, China's our only threat, but Russia is not. But it's like, well, there wouldn't be a China, like a Marxist China, CCP, without the Soviet Union. People don't know that or they fail to remember that. And I think that's really important to hone in on. And I, and I would hope people do that. But you can, I've tried to reason with certain people, especially on the right, who are like, oh, no, no, we're just going to do like through this lens, like if you support Ukraine, you're a Bidenite. And like, I disagree with Biden wholeheartedly. I don't support much of his policies, but that doesn't make me supportive of the president. It's just, I have, I cared about Ukraine long before this, this war broke out. And I do get a little peeved by some insincerity of people who do display Ukrainian flags without knowing the context behind it or knowing what the country was before this year. I don't like the virtue signaling on that end either. But I think People have to learn history. If you want to be consistently anti-Marxist, you need to see what Russia did to Ukraine through much of the 20th century. And I would hope that the dialogue does improve, but it doesn't help when we have certain media personalities kind of giving an odd to Russian propaganda at times and, and people just parroting that and saying that if you in any way support Ukraine, that makes you complicit with elites and globalism. It's like, well, I'm questioning of elites. Like, why are you why are you placing this? So again, we kind of have a myopic view of foreign policy, and I think people have this notion of. I was just reading a book um, about um, how social media has kind of made history as a profession, um, kind of um, put it, put the profession into question because now everyone does something like, or people lean more so on e history, so they make their own version of history, and the the professionals and those closest to Uh, the occupation are not newsmaking much on it. You have other people who are kind of diluting history or uh, making it as their own. And so we need to be cautious about ignoring history, creating a narrative for bite-sized, digestible consumption, and really distorting where public opinion is on this matter. Again, taking out the war equation. Like I said, I don't think many people want to go into war um, given all the problems we have here at home, but we can still morally and militarily support Ukraine without having boots on the ground.
1: Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman joining us. There's that old saying in uh, journalism about journalism supposed to be the first draft of history. I think that's kind of gone by the wayside and it touches on what you're talking about. Uh, Put your conservation hat on for just a second. You were writing about lead bans. Let's go to some domestic policy real quick lead in water is a massive problem. We know all the history on that. We've seen what's happened in municipalities. We've seen it in places like Flint. We've seen other water problems like what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi, which is mostly government incompetence, but we'll hash that out later. The lead ban you're talking about is not directly what we're talking about, like lead in in water or lead in paint that kids can get into or asbestos or lead in home things. This is a different thing, but it's got the word lead in it. So people kind of freaked out a little bit. Mm -hmm. You kind of turned the noise down on this. You got to the basics of it, and you think this is maybe one of those things where (laughs) nomenclature really, really mattered and the way they wrote to Some black and whites having some major unintended consequences.
6: Right, all the while ignoring the science. So a lot of environmentalists love to conflate pure lead, the toxic lead like you mentioned, that is found in traces of Flint water in Michigan and elsewhere and in lead paint. These are lead fragments. These are very minuscule in the stream of things. And you're not consuming these lead fragments when you're hunting or fishing. Uh, With respect to hunting, as you very well know, and many of your listeners probably will know, when you're hunting, you are largely dealing with a small amount of lead. And when you're field dressing and processing your meat, your deer, whatever, you are taking out those lead fragments to make sure that it doesn't take your meat. And if you get it out within a few hours, you'll be fine. If you let it stay there for days upon end, that may be a whole different story, but hunters are responsible enough to not leave lead in their animal. And I think we can leave it to hunters and anglers to be responsible about their lead usage without government policing their behavior. And what I meant with saying there's a denial of science with respect to lead, I've written extensively about this at RealClearPolicy and also at townhall.com, examining do lead components pose as much of a threat as like consuming pure lead? and i was e- able to debunk that very easily because the cdc itself said in its most recent scholarship on this issue when you account for let's say um i think it's uh, blood levels with respect to lead components or containments of lead in in blood blood levels and they they assessed you know uh blood levels with lead fragments in deer versus uh no lead fragments in deer and it was like a statistical null conclusion it was like maybe a 0.03 or 0.3 difference, very, very minuscule. It was statistically insignificant in the grand scheme of things. So their own government agencies have proven that lead fragments, when handled, not consumed, don't pose a threat. And there hasn't really been much of studies. They've they've pointed to the condor, they've pointed to endangered birds and ingesting it, but that's very limited. And the condor has now gotten, I would say, restored to its its glory. It's 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 recovered, it's recovering, it's not endangered anymore, and they're making a comeback. Uh, because people are more careful about what they use in the field, and also um, not just about hunters and, and anglers using lead components. It's also, you know, what other threats are posed to endangered birds, too. We have uh, renewable energy that also could be a threat to endangered birds as well. Um, but they're not painting the full picture. They're trying to paint an emotional story, isolating it to, well, you're going to hurt the plight of this condor, you're going to hurt the plight of eagles if you continue to use lead. And the Biden administration leaned on a complaint from a special interest group, an environmental organization called the Center for Biological Diversity. They're always suing the government to displace conservation stakeholders from the table. And what they did here is they said, well, you cannot open up 2 million acres to new hunting and fishing opportunities because lead components, in their view, pure lead, but it's actually lead components, pose the greatest threat to endangered species, to grizzly bears, to snakes, to whatever. And like I said, with with the findings of blood levels, and 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 the conclusions of it, there there is no impact thus far. The fishing and hunting interests I've spoken to, I've spoken to trade representatives from the hunting side and also the fishing side, and they have said unless we're presented new material pointing to the fact that lead usage in fishing and tackle or bullets or ammunition is found to be disproportionately bad, we will reassess and we will stop using this. But they said right now there's no evidence pointing to that, and what it's done what's done here is rather to incrementally impose bans on hunting and fishing. This is what environmentalists want to do. It sounds very sinister, but having followed their machinations for quite a bit of time, they find these little baby step moves to get the public on their side gradually or to force public behavior to change when it comes to consuming different activities or certain components. So when you eliminate lead tackle and bullets, what is shown to happen in California, no less, of course, California adopted a full ban, initial findings that w- or initial studies that went into this prohibition of ban- uh, lead tackle and bullets they estimated that several uh, thousand people would be displaced from the outdoor industry it would lead to potentially 36 to 40% of hunters and anglers not going hunting and fishing because they would be priced out of the activities and then it ultimately led to a shortage of conservation funding it has a ripple effect down the the chain of command you know when people stop buying goods it impacts livelihoods, it leads to fewer conservation dollars being generated, and then it leads to fewer people going outdoors. So people see these restrictions, incremental restrictions, as impeding on your lifestyle. When you do something like this, and the administration in this case went through with it with their new proposal to open 18 new public lands on national wildlife refuges under the Fish and Wildlife Service, that gives the administration permission to potentially ban other forms of hunting. Maybe not the accessories. Maybe they will say, okay, no grizzly bear management or okay, no black bear management. Even though the science says you have to manage those species no matter how cuddly or cute they are. So this, this invites incremental abridgments to your ability to hunt and fish. Um, it's not enshrined in the US constitution but different state constitutions have right to hunt and fish amendments enshrined in their respective chambers. And so people see this as an attack on their livelihoods, as an attack on these activities. And if you claim to be for public lands access, you shouldn't be making it harder, economically speaking, for people, especially newbies. And newbies who are not your traditional hunters and anglers, mostly black Americans, Hispanic Americans, women, children, young people, people who've never once picked up a rod or picked up a hunting rifle. They're the ones who are gonna be displaced by this. And that's so counterintuitive. And it's very much against the public lands ethos that we have here.
1: Yeah. Gabriella Hoffman. Okay. Here's a usage of lead that was damaging, but not in the way you normally think of it as. So we got, this went viral. These two yahoos up in Ohio, yes. uh, that got caught cheating. And the reason the lead comes into it is they were these are, these are called egg sinkers, um, for people that don't hunt and fish. It, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just an egg shaped chunk of lead that you put on a fishing. We use them for tout lining where you want to bait to sit down at the bottom of the lake. They used lead sinkers and fish fillets, and they were stuffing their fish and cheating. When you find out how these guys got caught, though, I love this so much. The suspicions actually arose because, number one, these were two guys that went on a hot streak winning, but they were only doing local tournaments. That was number one. Number two is, and the tournament director that caught him said, and this is the quote, he said, We thought it was odd they wanted to take their five fish and go home and not donate it to the Helping Hands of St. Louis. What they were doing was all the heavy fish, they were donating it to this food charity, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're not cutting these up. They cut these ones up because they were cheating. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to take their fish and go home. They actually got caught by the charity aspect of this, plus the fact they were greedy and kept doing it. And everybody caught on and they got caught. But not the way you normally see lead. But I know you're a big hunter and fisherman. You like fishing this is kind of humorous in one way there's a lot of money involved in these things by the Mm -hmm. way so it is fraud and the police are now involved i'm sure there'll be charges but i just want your opinion on it because i know you like the fish about these two yahoos and their lead weight i thought the fish fillets inside the fish was at least creative i'd never seen that one before but what do you think of these guys
6: before we went on the air we were talking about the phenomenon of cheating creeping into all these different sports. You look at football, baseball, what have you. Now it's creeping into fishing, which is supposed to be this wholesome activity. You don't think tournament fishing is plagued by all these cheating scandals. Now we can say they have been. And it calls into question, do other people have these practices too? And and with these two individuals in particular, I suspect they were probably doing nefarious tactics beforehand, uh, maybe in the most recent uh, year because how else would you prime yourself for winning so much money? So maybe there are previous records and wins will be called into question too. And it's humorous. I love the memes that are coming out of it. Like You could take some levity from this really bad situation and be like, see, everyone's in agreement that these guys are yahoos, that they should lose their fishing privileges. Some people are like, well, it's too harsh to say they should lose their fishing privileges. But when you violate you know, the basic standards and, and the conditions you agree to that you would be ethical, you would harvest the fish reasonably you would in the case that you mentioned donate the proceeds or donate your earnings or rather donate the fish that you harvested to a local charity when you violate all those different principles i think you should face a stiff penalty it's much like with poaching and hunting if you violate the rules ethics you you take more than your lot you're hunting out of season you're hunting illegally you need to be made an example of because then it's it's saying if you get a lenient punishment then it's saying okay your behavior really wasn't that problematic we'll let you off the hook you could do this again so i think these individuals need to i don't know about a permanent ban i think they should have let's say a a quasi permanent ban maybe they can uh try to work towards good behavior and restore you know trust within the public but i think they need to face a little bit of a penalty they need at least 5 years 10 years no tournament Fishing, maybe a permanent ban on, on tournament fishing, but a temporary penalty on their fishing licenses too, because what poaching may be what or what unethical behavior may they be engaged in if they're recreationally fishing? That should call into question. Maybe they're doing some really shady behavior when they're not competing in tournaments, too. So I think a, a penalty needs to be had. They need to be made an example of because it'll further create discord. I was talking to uh even female tournament anglers who said, this behavior is not isolated. Sometimes this does happen even more than what's being reported and it doesn't make and and boost morale, uh, with respect to, to fishing's integrity. And so the memes are great. I think these anglers need to be made an example of have no proximity to tournament angling, pay restitution, pay fines, and to really see the error of their ways and, and to beg for forgiveness because conservation, it's a, fish our, our fish the wild animals that we pursue they're a public good they're meant for us you know they they're available for us to steward to enjoy to harvest in regulated means not to cheat the system when you're competing in tournaments not to uh bloviate not to obviously in, inflate certain things and conditions you have to go according to ethics because People will take these examples. I could envision animal rights advocates saying, and any, you know, believe it or not, PETA does go after fishing too. They they hate cra- people eating crabs. They have a really uh, fine hatred of Maryland crab eating. They hate hunters, absolutely. They also dislike recreational fishing and they say that fish have feelings, therefore we shouldn't fish. And so they could use this opportunity and say, see, look what they're doing. They're hurting the fish. They're stuffing it with dangerous toxic lead and they're also stuffing it with fish fillets. So we need to ban tournament fishing. This gives opportunists in environmental interests to seize upon these incidents and to further restrict people. So, we need to be careful about how we present ourselves, exhibit ethical behavior. If you're catching and releasing, showing the release, acknowledging you released, not showing gory pictures, not cheating, uh, because we have a responsibility to be good examples for these activities, even on a recreational basis. I don't tournament fish, but I, I know a little of the dynamics, but you can apply it consistently recreationally and, and tournament fishing. but. Um, People have good impressions of these activities. We need to keep that because the livelihoods are under assault all the time. And this could be used to hurt us. So that's what I think the takeaway from this walleye cheating situation is. I hope your listeners agree with that too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Gabrielle Hoffman, I'm going to disagree with you on one thing. People have been lying and cheating about fishing since the first pole went in the water. Right. I'll prove it to you right now. How big was that last fish you caught?
6: That was 45 inches.
1: (laughs) This Big, you know, and you do. Gabriella Hoffman. <laughs> yeah, you measure it. Uh, Gabriella Hoffman, outstanding stuff. Uh, you've been all over the place. We're going to link to the piece. Uh, the lead band piece was in IWF. We'll link to that. We'll also link to the rest of her work because you're all over the place. You're writing a lot. You're talking a lot. Till we get you back on her till next time, let folks know where they can keep up with all that crazy stuff you're doing, even though you're going to be homebound for at least a week or two mm-hmm. now.
6: Yes, I'm excited to stay put here in the Northern Virginia area. But if your listeners wish to connect with me and you've been very generous with teeing up my podcast, I really appreciate that. Listen to District of Conservation. We have phenomenal guests coming on the pipeline. I've been interviewing a lot of newsmakers. We'll be interviewing a lot of, I think, Virginia department heads. I'm going to talk to our conservation officer and maybe our agriculture cabinet member uh, in the coming months, hopefully some national newsmaker soon. But I'm even talking to people in the field who are not really well known, but have something interesting to say. So district of conservation on all podcasts played i'm on social media easily denoted by blue check marks you can follow my musings at young voices where andrew and i have first linked up uh, a while ago but we're both part of the young voices contributor program if you're in the northeast and mid atlantic we are actively recruiting new contributors for our program so talk to me if you have an interest in wanting to elevate your commentary or commenting career media career we would love to uh, in Uh, we would love to have your application come through and and we would love to welcome your interest to the program as well. I'm also actively writing at townhall.com. I'm a senior fellow with Independent Women's Forum. I have lots of other writings. I have a YouTube channel where I do post my interviews, but I also post like fun travels that I do to national parks, public lands, fishing, hunting, things of that sort. I have a hunting trip coming up, going to be hunting largely with a exclusive group of females in georgia sometime really soon so i'm going to highlight that i'm going to be reviewing some new boots that i received uh from irish setter so i have some cool stuff i have like a mix of like political commentary um video overviews and then also product reviews sometime relating to hunting and fishing so i hope you all connect with me and thank you for hearing me on the program today
1: yeah we uh, actually advertise it because it's that good of a program gabriella hoffman you're great see you again soon my friend thanks for the time
6: thank you andrew lovely chatting with you thank you ma'am now, let me
1: see you., go off like a Hi, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, one of my very favorite people to talk to. He's been here frequently, although it's been way too long, buddy. You've been too busy up there in yeah. the not yet Great White North, but give it a couple weeks. You're not too far from snow. I don't figure uh, he's up in the Minneapolis St. Paul area. Uh, great writer, ordinary-times.com and his own writing at medium and his podcast, which we'll talk about in a minute. Dennis Saunders, how are you, sir? Great to see you again.
4: I am doing well, and probably it will be next week when it's the great white north. You, you never know here in Minnesota.
1: Yeah, I was just talking to one of our friends out in Colorado, and they're like, you get four distinct seasons, but they come without warning. Same thing up there. It's like, eh, it's 70, it's snow, and it's, there's not a whole lot of transitional time, is there, up there?
4: No, there is not. There There is summer and then, you know, a week of fall and then six months of winter. So yeah, this is Narnia pretty much mm. without, you know, without the Christmas.
1: <laughs> well, at least you got a nice lampposts, which I do know Minneapolis has. Uh We've got a mess on our hands, my friend. Let's talk about oh, it. You gosh, were tweeting yeah, about the Herschel Walker thing. Hypocritical politicians are not new. I would say that's more the norm than the exception. So I don't think that's actually the story here. No, I think the story here, is the intersecting lines, the cross streams, if you will, of how people are reacting to the hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. I don't want to debate the whole thing because it it rehashes a lot, but the the base level of it is none of this is new. If you Googled Herschel Walker, most of this information, even though we didn't have some of the specifics, this was all already out there. So the people that are thinking, well, this is going to, I don't think this actually changes this race all that much. I think it may change in a few points and this is probably going to be a couple points race. So that may be enough. But this idea that, the GOP is currently constituted after years of Trump is going to just abandon him because of this. We've already seen evidence. I don't think that's actually going to happen. How do you want to approach this? Cause I thought you had a pretty strong line online and I don't think you're wrong. Although I would narrow it down. I don't think it's all Republicans or all conservatives, or everybody on the right, but this is a, this is a good test case here is like, do you have a political party? Do you have an ideology or do you have a brand that you're going to protect at all costs?
4: Yeah. And I, I think what has happened with the GOP over the years is that the things that make up a political party, kind of the selecting of candidates, um, even the kind of the vetting, the whole um, how how you handle candidates, um, even dismissing them, the, the power is gone. I, I think a lot of that has been steadily being eroded, and that even happened, I think, before. Trump came on the scene. And I think that's actually why you see the the rise of Trump. And I, at the same time, I think there's also this really rise in identity um, in the in, within the body politic, I think, as a whole, where who we are as Republicans and as Democrats are, we're just kind of bound up in that it, so that it now becomes who we are and becomes our kind of our brand, our identity. And um, when it comes to people like Herschel Walker, since we no longer have that kind of party discipline anymore, but we have this kind of brand, that identity that we wanna protect and, and tribalism, basically what it boils down to is that how a candidate acts no longer matters. What matters is that they're on our side and they will vote our way. And, you know, does it, who cares if, you know, our candidate who says that they want to ban abortion now um, actually also obviously paid for an abortion um, many years ago and doesn't seem to be bothered by it. So, I mean, I, I think that's where we are right now. And I think you see that among the Democrats to some extent as well, but it's, It's far, far more pronounced um, with the Republicans.
1: Let's back up for a second, because I want to put a little context on this. There's a theme that runs through these stories every time we have them. Let's go back to the Obama administration. Remember the Treasury Secretary when he was the appointee, and we found out all the stuff about him, and the line was, well, we have to have him for the good of the country. The country, we got to have this guy. The line for Clinton, well, Mm -hmm. it's okay that he lied because he's the president. Look at all the wonderful things he's doing. Mm-hmm. The folks that supported Trump. Well, he's he's fighting all the right enemies. So you can pick anybody of any yes. party going back as far as you want to go. Uh, you can go back to the, to the Jefferson, Madison crap. You know, the it's same thing is, well, my vision is good for the country. And that stuff got really ugly in the press. It's always the same story of, well, the rationalization is, well, it doesn't matter X, Y, and Z because we really got to have this person. We're talking about Herschel Walker who in and of himself is a celebrity candidate for the U S Senate. He doesn't have actual any qualifications whatsoever for the job. He doesn't know how to do the job. It's strictly a celebrity candidate and go ahead and miss me. Cause if the Democrats put up a celebrity candidate, I'll say the same thing about that. He's going against a sitting U S Senator who good, bad or indifferent. If you don't like it, he at least has a track record in the U S Senate, a very pronounced progressive. That's who he is. That's the background he came through you judge those two records. You have a celebrity candidate and you have a very traditional progressive incumbent candidate. That's this race. So even if you're going to go to, well, we got to have this guy, no matter his record. I don't find that one bit compelling here because I don't think he's really qualified for the office anyway. So now you're into, well, he's the lesser of two evil. You see where this is just becoming a swirling thing. It seems like we're doing it with every single freaking candidate that comes out. That's on the fringes like this.
4: Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, um, Raphael Warnock has his own issues. Um, there have been allegations we'll be like of that. of um, domestic violence. And I'm, I don't want to equalize that, and I, it, this is not whataboutism, but it, it, it's the fact that, especially it's more pronounced now than ever before, and it's been building over decades, is that our candidate is our candidate, and we will support them regardless of, of who what they do. Because you know they'll vote the way that we want them to vote, and you know I I think I was reading the other day um, an op-ed by Henry Olson, who um, in the Washington Post, who said basically that that you know he's pro-life candidate, Um, Raphael Warnock isn't, so we're just going to support him. Um, Also, kind of forgetting that there is another issue there. It's not just the abortion issue. I mean there there have been also repeated um, allegations of, of domestic violence with Herschel Walker as well. And again, we're just going to ignore that because he's going to vote the way that we want him to vote.
1: Put your pastor hat on for a second. Bad behavior doesn't start with the worst behavior. It's a learned behavior. Most of Mm -hmm. the time with very few exceptions. The reason we're doing this politically is we have conditioned ourselves over many, many years to do this. And, I'm, I'm going to go to Clinton because that was the first election of my lifetime, but this goes before him. I'm not just picking on him. That was the first time we did it in mass media as we know it today with the yes. internet, with mass mm-hmm. media, we did the, oh, well, he's the president. Well, any, if anybody deserves some peace on the side, that's the, I heard network TV anchors yes. say that people don't believe me saying it. We had sitting United States government officials come out and say, well, we cannot allow this to derail the work of the people. That was the Clinton administration line for all of his lies. And, and we now know, we didn't know as much then as we know now, his other abuses of women that have been alleged and otherwise. And we had sitting people on network TV. I, rem- I, I remember when it was live and it became legend after that. I'm sure there's YouTube. <laughs> you had people sitting on network TV and go, it's amazing how well he lies to us. It's just a marvel to behold. That happened. I, I watched it. You watched it. world enough to remember this. That's the first time I remember it happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was a democratic president and Republican mm-hmm. response. And I talked about it on this program. Hey, look, Newt Gingrich had to resign. You know, Livingston couldn't become the speaker because he had to resign in scandal. Gingrich had scandal. And then they got replaced by hazard who ended up going oh, to prison for molesting children. <laughs> yes. So this is, this is bipartisan mess. Mm-hmm. And then, but you want to know how you got Trump? that begot Trump eventually because you just put things aside and you put it aside and the Democrats put it aside and the Republicans put it aside and the libertarians and the independents and the purple hippopotamus party. I don't care who it is. We've done this for at least the 30 years I've been following politics since I was a teenager that got us to here. And and we don't want to talk about that part of this.
4: Nope. No. and, And I think that that's, that is fascinating. I, I, you know the 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 whole clinton mess i think in many ways when um trump got into trouble um in 2016 and now i'm forgetting the the, the name of the program but um but the tapes that were out there and the grab them by you know the you know what and everyone thought that, that was going to be he was going to get um derailed by that and what did he do the 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 dates were coming up he brought all of the people who had accused bill clinton of different um form either sexual harassment or or even allegations of rape he brought them on tv and i think that that pretty much effectively stopped any any type of of um talk anymore about what he had done because the democrats didn't really have anything to say they you know they had a a leader whose wife was now running for president who did a lot of the things that we were now uh, were being accused of trump and i think those things have a way of coming back around and biting people and and i think it is also in this time of age and i think as a pastor you know this what tribalism does is that it blinds us to our own sin so we don't have to see the problems that we are doing. We don't have this sense of introspection, and so we're blind to that. And um, again, kind of like here, we, we were talking about the Herschel Walker thing. It's it's bad, but we're not thinking about how other part. You know, that this has been part of a process, but as you said, has been building over the last thirty years, and that we just don't. We don't see it and don't and choose not to see it because the other guy is is worse, and so that's why we and so we need to you know elect our person so that we can um, have our policies put forward and who care and and to make sure that the other guy doesn't get in power.
1: The other guy, Dennis Saunders, joining us. The other person get, not getting in power is part of the problem here, too, because mm-hmm. we, got, we got some pretty amazing audio this week of um, one person in particular just saying, well, I don't care, just win the Senate. Well, hold on. The Republicans had the Senate just two years ago.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: They may lose it. They may gain it. It may be another split Senate for the next two years. The Senate is, in the last 15 years or so, It's never more than a two or three cycle thing. The Senate switches hands. Why do we just stop for a second and go, wait a minute. Why are you trading all this goodwill and your integrity and all this for this temporary thing that we already know historically you're not going to have for very long? And then when you get it, frankly, Republican Party, you did precious little with it when you had all three branches of government. You didn't Mm -hmm. even by your own standards, you didn't do very much with it. We're always told most important election of our lifetime. If we just win the house, if we just win the Senate, both parties do this, especially the right though. If you just win the Senate, if you just win the house, if you just get this governorship, how long are we going to dangle that carrot before people start taking some stock and go, wait a minute, this is just a perpetual thing because I'm on like my ninth or 10th, most forced election of our lifetimes. Right. Mm -hmm. At least you're on more than that. I like, I'm just, I don't have anything pithy to say here. I'm frustrated. I don't understand why people can't see past their noses on this stuff.
4: It's the age that we live in. It's. I mean, we're just incredibly tribal, and all that matters is our tribe. And it doesn't even matter how long we have the House or the presidency or the governorship or the dog catcher or whatever. What matters is having it. That's, that's the point um it it doesn't even matter anymore about governing i mean we don't really care about trying to be uh to govern and to try to to lead a a nation of 330 million people it's it's really about the prize and that is all that matters and i don't know how that changes i really don't i um like you i'm frustrated i mean i someone that is fascinated by politics but i also want politics to do something um to aspire to more to try to solve um some of the problems that we face as a nation and as a world and but you can't have that if all that you're doing is trying to um just grab the presidency or the or the senate seat or whatever just as a trophy and that's kind of where we are right now. And I'm really at a loss anymore as to how we get out of that.
1: Yeah. Dennis Saunders joining us. He's got a couple different things going like the church and main podcast. I, I wonder with our politics. With everything being personality driven, let's be honest, the parties are now secondary to the personalities. That's the real problem here. I don't know how you ever fix a identity thing with a political solution. In other words, I think part of what's going on is we keep wanting to use the political parties to fix something cultural mm-hmm. and the political parties keep pitching culture to try to fix the politics and never the twain will meet except in fundraising. Those those are two tracks that sometimes they intersect that's true, but most of the po- most of the time they don't. And the thing is, you can keep that lie going for a very, very long time before they hit an intersection where it has to hit because something really big culturally or politically happens, a disaster happens, a crisis happens. Is that too cynical of a way of viewing this? Because I feel like that's kind of how this happens is you just see that other train on the parallel track and you're just assuming they're never going to collide with each other. That seems to be kind of where we're at with some of this.
4: It is. and. I'd go even farther to say what's happened is that um, politics has become a religion and it's kind of become the kind of the, the worst aspects of religion in that um, we are so kind of bound up by who we are, um, whether that's liberal or conservative, that we can't um, it, it makes us kind of see the other side, not simply as someone that we disagree with, but as the enemy and that that enemy has to be defeated. And so um, when you're kind of looking that way, I think it allows you to excuse a lot. Um, And I think that's kind of where we're at.
1: Dennis Saunders joining us. Let's just go there with that, though. We know historically all kinds of bad stuff happens under the guise of God wills it. You know, the old deuce vault <laughs> from the Crusades on. Mm-hmm. God's a really bad excuse to do a lot of really bad human things. We mm-hmm. know this is historically true. We're seeing it in the American church and there's just no way around it. People get mad talking about this, but look, you're, you're more of a mainline. You're more progressive. And I don't mean politically. I mean, theologically, mm-hmm. you're more progressive yeah. than I am. I'm more traditional. <laughs> what people call evangelical, although I hate that term, and we'll debate that some other time. I I'm, think I come from a bit of a different tradition, but I'm way more conservative Baptist than you are. Here's where I know we agree, because we talk about it so much. When you start substituting theology and politics together, I don't even know where to start with it even more, even though I've studied theology for 20 years, both academically and just because I really like it, but Either either your God is an omnipotent God that knows what's going on or he's not. And if you're saying, well, I need to do this to win this election for God, that's not compatible with that. I hate to be that simple about this, mm-hmm. but it really is that simple. When your church starts telling you you have to do this, this, and this for God politically, number one is I don't think you're honoring God. Number two is I think you're fooling yourself and giving yourself too much of power that isn't yours in the first place to go do things that really isn't in your purview to start with. That's really Reader's Digest. That's really basic. I know people can pick that apart, but I'm tired of all the ethereal arguments on this. When you get down to the core of it, that's what it is. It's you have to do what I said to do because this is, and we just tack God in front of whatever X, Y, and Z is. That is extremely unhealthy for a church. It's unhealthy for a, it'd be unhealthy for an Elks organization. It's really (laughs) unhealthy for a democratic republic that is pluralistic, that is rapidly diversifying, and that let's call it what it is that is losing any interest whatsoever in what Christian churches have to say about much of anything with the way they're conducting themselves. And I've got data to back all of that up, but what Mm -hmm. do you think?
4: No, I agree. I, I think that churches, especially I would say in the last 30, 40 years, we've done a bad job of being, I think, a good type of Christian witness. Um, we have kind of substituted the the rough and tumble of politics um and kind of jammed that into religion and then um and so you know in some ways we end up with where we're at now with herschel walker so you know we can say yes abortion is sinful and bad and wrong and we're gonna also support this guy who paid for an abortion Um, and I think there is something I was, I've heard, um, David French talk about, and I've heard about it too, and you're probably familiar with it more, even more so than I am, is that there is a certain group of, of, um, people in the pro-life movement that are far radical, the abortion abolitionists, who basically there is the sense of, of no abortion whatsoever, um, even if it's. You know to save the life of a mother and that if a woman has an abortion well then they should be um, imprisoned or punished for it but here you have herschel walker who as i think david french says had basically murder for hire um and eh, you know who cares not that much and then we wonder why the church doesn't have that influence anymore and you know yes part of it is because we're a more diverse nation people have other faiths and all of that but as you have said part of it is also our witness and um our has sucked it, it's it's been terrible and that we're we don't always live up to what we are professing and then when we that happens um when we're kind of found out then we try to try to excuse ourselves and try to you know offer different things well it's for this reason or for that reason um and so people i think they see through that and they have enough of it and they they walk away
5: now let me see you go off like a bomb <laughs>
1: Saunders joining us i you know something else is going to upset anybody but it's just it's true we got the data if you, when you i think this is a thing and i've this has been talked about by a lot of smarter people than me and i'm going to i'm going to use a broad brush here because i have to to get to the point but just i'll admit up front this is a broad brush christian evangelicalism on the right mm-hmm. predominantly a middle-class white institution by the vast majority. They have an absolute persecution per- complex where they're so they are quite possibly the most privileged religious subsect of people that has ever walked the face of the earth. When you talk about wealth, when you talk about influence, that like this is fact Christianity is a multi billion dollar industry in America, they have privileges, and I really think there's something to it that they innately understand. Well, if I can have political persecution, that validates all my feelings and that validates my beliefs. Folks are going to get mad. I'm going to get hate mail for that. Look, I is one. I'm a Baptist. Okay. I think there's something to that accusation. I think there's validity to the accusation. They want that martyrdom complex and they substitute politics for it because, and, you know, the culture's out to get me. The government's out to get me. The left's out to get me and they are out to get my beliefs when they're really historically speaking and compared to the rest of the world, they're very cushy and they're very comfortable. I don't know if it's a guilt thing. I don't know what it is. That's a real thing. I'm convinced of it. Am I wrong?
4: No, you're not. And that persecution complex has been around for decades. I think it's, it's, it's gotten worse over the last few years, um, especially as, I think America has changed, um, demographically and all of that. Um, there hasn't really been, there hasn't been, a, been within American evangelicalism kind of a, a really deep reckoning, uh, on, on things. Um, and I think that that needs to happen. Um, I'm not, even though i as you said, we, you know, we come from different, um, backgrounds, I think there is an important american evangelicalism is important it has an important heritage um but it needs at some point to to really face up to some of its its shortfalls and it hasn't um and i think especially during the trump years that has been really enabled um to continue to feel as if they are the the victims um and I don't know what happens to bring that about. Um, kind of like a lot of things, I don't that are happening in our world today. I don't have an easy answer or know how that happens, um, but it has to happen. And um, I, you know, I think both the religious and the political issues that we've been talking about, it almost feels like there has to be some type of outside crisis. Um, a, a kind of the the mother of all come to Jesus moments for that to happen. um, And I don't know when that will happen or how that will happen, but it seems like that's really the only way that something is going to change.
1: Yeah. Dennis Saunders joining us. I think this is where you start having problems within the church. You know, again, folks, this is grown folk talk. So if it's rough, you know, maybe this episode ain't for you. We're just going to be real about a few things here. This is how you get the mess you're having with the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Exactly, it's because they, you, we do not want to discuss our churches as power structures, because oh, that's a that's a social justice term or that's a progressive term. No, it's just reality. I I've had on Jennifer Greenberg. I've had on these abuse experts. Every we we just did a episode on uh, the Marilyn Monroe movie on exploitation abuse and exploitation and things like this, whether it was Marilyn Monroe in the studio system or kids in the church system or the Catholic church too, or a government organization, or even in a home with an abusive adult, it's always a power structure problem. And we have just absolutely refused to look at our churches as power structures because, especially in evangelical conservative Christianity, we put so much power on the pastors and on the superstars and on the televangelists that they become their own little power structures and there's no accountability anymore, which number one isn't biblical and I don't want to bore people to death, but that's, that's completely against anything. You don't have a Bible verse for doing that. Sorry. You don't, I've heard them all. Okay. I've been the Sword of Lord conference. Just miss me with that. If you do not have accountability, if you do, you know this will preach I, I I've got a God in the Bible I read that says, "Test me <laughs> mm-hmm. he's not afraid of accountability if any human being holds up religion and says, "No, we're not accountable, that's the biggest red flag of red flags, and yet folks still flock to these people and that's when you get abuse and that's when you get damage and that's when you get people so far off the map that people really seriously get hurt
4: mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, the, the interesting thing about, especially about the um, Southern Baptists, especially, is that because of their size, um, they have had a lot of influence in the culture. Um, I think I remember we were talking earlier about uh, Bill Clinton. I think it was, they came up with a very strong kind of statement. Um, I think it was at the 1998 um, convention um about what was going on at that time so I mean they have influence and yet they also did at the same time did damage to their witness because you know they had a lot of pastors and and other leaders and um, male leaders that were abusive and they pretty much hid them and um and hid what was going on and I think we're very, just horrible towards people who have been abused in many cases mostly women um which then brings up another issue about the role of gender um and i'm not you know you don't have to agree with how i view of of male female relations um but that was a pro that's a problem within evangelicalism and i again there needs to be at some point, some type of reckoning of how do we deal with all of this? Um, Doesn't mean that y'all have to become progressives, but how do you come come to terms? How do you uh, repent? And how do you kind of reform?
1: Uh, Dennis Saunders joining us. This is why I love talking to him because I can throw this real heavy stuff at him and he doesn't blink. The political movements that we're seeing now on the hardening right, National Mm -hmm. conservatism, Christian nationalism. You can call these a lot of different terms, but none of this is new. This is new branding, but none of this stuff is new. This is the same thing that I've, I've told our Catholic friends about, uh, some of, they've got their theocratic movement too. And some of them are merging with this national conservative stuff. Amazingly enough, which is really, really hilarious to me in in a dark way. I don't buy you as a political movement when you can't even get your pews full on Sunday.
4: Hmm.
1: I mean, you're telling me that you're going to have this great Christian national awakening. You can't even fill churches up, man, but you're going to have a political movement of it. Mm -hmm. So that tells me two things. One is you're not serious about it because you would build your church first and then try to make it into a movement if that was accurate. Number two, that also tells me that you know well and good. You know well and good the limits of your movement. And... (laughs) Somebody said it on Twitter and I would cite it, but they're like, if, if your movement starts with a conference, it's not a movement, it's a business model. Um, I I don't want to overplay because I think people are losing their l- minds a little bit about how dangerous this is because I don't think they're going to be more than a niche. I don't think they're going to be any bigger than what they really are. But I do think it's important to point it out. That's like, look, yes, America has a Christian tradition. Yes, we have in God we trust <laughs> on our money, but it's more complicated than that. And if you're going to have religious freedom, you have to give people some breathing room underneath that. And when you go to this Christian nationalism stuff, you're not only not giving people breathing room, but you're actively chasing down people's rights and freedoms because those two things are just not compatible in the United States of America. That's pluralistic. And it's going to hurt people that really do have faith. And that's the piece they don't understand because they don't care because it's about power, not about faith.
4: But well, that's the thing, it's not, for, for a lot of these movements, Christian nationalism or anything, it's about power. Um, it isn't about trying to fill up the pews. It's really about trying to control the levers of power. And in some ways, I don't see this any more different than um, kind of what's going on in, in um, Russia. If you talk about the Russian Orthodox Church and um, Patriarch Kirill, same thing very much the kind of grab power grab it's not about um the church or 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 trying to be christ-like um to living out what um how christ lived it's about gaining the control of power but we'll just sprinkle a little religious fairy dust on it and it'll make it all right yeah,
1: I've gotten my first death threats in quite a long time because I wrote a piece that literally said, you know, Patriarch Kirill can go to hell because mm-hmm. he was he was bringing back plenary indulgences for anybody that would go fight in Ukraine, which is just I never thought Whoa. I'd be that in my life. Um. But, um, yeah, the bots got after me about that. But whatever, even crippled, you know, pack a lunch, bring a bunch of friends. You're going to need it. Um, That's the extreme example is what Kirill's doing, where he's saying, mm-hmm. well, if you go off and fight, then your sins are forgiven. You go to heaven. <coughs> real crusader type stuff that we should not be yeah. seeing in the year of our Lord 2022. No, that's the extreme. But like the hypocrisy thing we started out talking about that didn't happen overnight either. You know, the nope. Russian, the, that particular, I don't want to say all of them because there's also descending parts of the Russian Orthodox church. that yes, this stuff. Is. The official Russian Orthodox church has been corrupt for decades going all the way back through the Soviet union. This isn't a new thing. They got there by steps. You know, the old Rich Mullen song, sometimes by steps. It applies mm-hmm. to this, too. That's why we need to talk about things like churches getting overtly political. And I don't care which way, because progressive churches have the same problem. They get all laid up on the politics yep. and they they lose their ministry. I, I This is why you got to start it and nip it in the bud, the Barney Fife theology. You got to nip it in the bud because the patriarchal of the world didn't start out that way. Mm -hmm. they started out with well this guy's got to be in power so we can be in power and you end up there so yeah we probably won't see that in america in our lifetimes hopefully who knows the way this is going but that's why i think we do need to talk about this it's culture and politics because it's a ball of yarn that is not you can't separate it anymore and religion is a more than one of those strands of yarn in that ball now and i don't think it's healthy for us to pretend otherwise anymore especially people that do take their face here look i'm a i'm a pitiful christian i'm a c minus at best christian that's on my good days i don't i don't preach at people because i'm very well aware of my own failings and my own sin and i just don't you know you can call me a hypocrite in a big hurry and it's all true when it comes to faith because i'm not good at it i fail but we if you care at all about faith if you care at all about religious freedom if you care at all about your country daggone we better start talking about this in an adult fashion in some some form i I think some conflict would actually be healthy here because right now everybody's just kind of doing it by uh, you know osmosis and inertia and Mm -hmm. that's why we're where are we at
4: it's funny that you brought up um, rich mullins Um, he was actually um, probably in my more evangelical days i really and i still do loved his music Um, there's a video that's been going around and I don't know when it was from, if I think maybe from, from the early to mid nineties. So it was just before his death. Um, he was someone that challenged that the evangelical culture of his day. Um, but he not only challenged it, he actually lived it out. Um, you know, he, money that he got, he actually, um, had an accountant make sure that he got paid basically what was the, I guess, ongoing way average wage for someone and everything else was given away. Um, he spent, I think the last few years of his life, uh, working, uh, among, um, the Navajo to, um, teach music. Um, he spoke out against kind of, um, the, I would say the cushy lifestyle, Sometimes that, uh, especially a lot of evangelicals, were living, and you know that's we need more of those type of people um, in our culture today. Um, maybe I don't know if that's a prophet or not, but I mean that that's the we are sorely lacking of those type of people who not only um, who can speak out but also live it out. Um, it's you know we have a lot of people that talk a lot but they don't really believe what they necessarily believe. It, it's really all about power. Um, and I think we need more Rich Mullins in our, um, in our culture and in our political life these days.
1: think um Dennis Saunders joining us. I think this is a church-wide problem especially on the evangelical right, which again I hate that term but it's what I got so I got to use it especially conservative churches there's zero tolerant for for the dissenters anymore. Oh there's yes. there's very little tolerant for the characters. You know the <laughs> they just get the crowd as liberals and get ran out and th- this 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 has been a long time building. You can go back to the moral majority days and the Look let, let, let me go to history because I want to stick to facts, not just not my opinion all the time. You can say what you want about the Christian fundamentalists of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but when they said separation, they meant it. They didn't want nothing to do with the politics. They wanted to be left alone. They they were wrong about a lot of things, but they when they said it, they meant it, and they believed it, and they went out and lived it. Mm-hmm. This new strand of fundamental Puritanism that is mixing the politics and the culture, and they're saying, well, we've got to do this, this, and this, I think that's the biggest problem they got is nobody that's outside of their clique, nobody that's outside of that niche. And even people like me who are, you know, probably more sympathetic to them than other people. Cause I understand where they're coming from. There's no way to look at their support of people. I'm just going to go there like a Herschel Walker, like a Donald Trump. Like if you tell me, okay, I'm supporting Donald Trump for this, this, and this reason, and he's got these failings, but I've done, okay, fine. I, even if I don't agree, I heard your logical thought out argument. I'm talking about the people who pitched him as a religious leader. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the people like, oh, well, he's a Christian now, even though there's zero evidence of that whatsoever. I'm talking about the people who just slap that peg as a widget into their wheel of already existing, whatever's going on in their ideology, philosophy, and theology, and just press ahead because nothing ever dents the bubble. That's where not having dissonance that's where not getting challenged on anything that's where having a closed loop system to use the apple term because i'm not in the cult of fruit you poor souls that are i'm i'm praying for you that (laughs) closed loop system though this is what it creates 10 out of 10 times you can't have dissent you can't think you can't challenge that's not democratic it's not healthy and i could argue pretty successfully that's not really biblical either which is full of people being challenged and God himself saying, go ahead and challenge me. It's okay because I can handle it because God, this closed loop stuff is dangerous because that's where you get that power structure. That's where you get the bad political ideas. That's where you get some really nasty stuff. And all that stuff starts with being a little bit of tolerant of the long haired hippies saying, well, why don't we just feed people and not worry about the rest of it? I don't agree with them, but you hear that opinions because it'll push you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or hey, let's let's debate what this verse really means, or let's debate the ratio between doing things internally for studying and, and doing things outwardly in the community. Because no, you can't just be a food bank either. Because now you're not a church either; you're a food bank. But we're not having any of those conversations. It seems like
4: no, we're not. I, I think you know, kind of going back to the that the GOP isn't a political party anymore. Is that I think when political parties usually have some give for difference that we're not all going to have the same opinion on the same issue, um, all the time. You know, there might be people in a certain part of the country that are, you know, have more room for tolerance for gun, let's say f- with for gun restrictions than, um, other parts of the country. And there used to be that sense of tolerance and give and again when political parties and this is all on both sides when they become um identities then there you can't have dissent because if there's dissent then that challenges the identity and it challenges who you are i mean i think that's you know the democrats years ago there used to be a a healthy amount of pro-life democrats when i Um, I hail from Michigan um, and Dale Kilde was the person that represented my part of the state. He was a long time pro-life Democrat. Um, You don't have that anymore. Um, There is no you, there is no room in the democratic party for dissent on that issue. And you know, again, when, when parties basically are identities, this is what you end up with. And it's, It's building towards something that's not good for, for the country.
1: Saunders joining us, uh, using church really broadly to include everybody—Catholic, Protestant, whatever—people of faith. You know, even our Jewish friends, Muslim friends, Hindu friends, Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster—we'll throw them into because the colanders are really cool. How do we get people of faith to take religious freedom seriously? Because, frankly, the people of faith not taking religious freedom seriously is the biggest threat to religious freedom, in my opinion. <laughs>
4: it starts by seeing that that other person is a child of god it starts by seeing them from your faith as someone that is created and um, by God and is deserving of of respect and of um, freedoms that you have um, even if you don't agree with them that you allow them as a, a as a christian to be able to live out their their life in the best way that is possible um the problem now is that god has become tribal and so our gods can't see beyond anything from ourselves and so if there is someone that is different from us then they're not simply different and just um should and and we don't see them as people that have the freedom to kind of live out their lives but as the enemy that must be destroyed um and i think for anything to change we have to see each other see the person who is is different from us as someone at least within our within the christian faith as someone that is a child of god even if we don't agree with them and because of that we want to uh, give them the utmost respect.
1: Is that why eleven a.m. on Sundays the most segregated hour in America? Still,
4: hmm. Yes, yeah. You know, I think it is. I think um, it's funny. I think you know. I was just hearing something earlier um, on the um, the Dispatch podcast about the fear. Especially among conservative white conservatives, of not wanting to be called racist. But, and obviously that makes some sense. But I think we still, especially I think within American evangelicalism, there is still an issue when it comes to race. That doesn't mean necessarily that people are running around in hoods and setting fire to things. But I think people still haven't been able to reach out and see that someone who's African American or, or or Latino or whatever is, is just another person, and that it's important to build a bridge, um, and not a wall. And, um, you know, I think we're not, at least in some parts of of American evangelicalism, that's, that's not a, a possibility at this point.
1: That'll do it for Herd Tell. Did it a little different today, but that's important. Look, that's the grown folk way of doing these cultural stories, these political stories, these breaking news stories. It's what we're always going to try to do here. We'd love to hear feedback from you. Herdtel show at gmail.com, Herdtel Show on the Twitter. Also, comments and reviews in any of the platforms that you're watching or listening to the program. We do see those. Love to interact with you on those. We'd love to hear from you. Cause if you ain't listening and watching, we ain't got anybody to talk to. This is a partnership, and we appreciate you very much for however it is you spend your time with us. We always want to respect it. We never want to waste your time, so we bring you the stories that matter like this one. Till we see you again on Herd Tell, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well-fed. We hope this story makes you hug your loved ones just a little bit more. We'll talk to you about it next time on more Herd Tell. All the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.